Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Enjoy. All right, here we go. Another episode of the Talent Tank back in session. We're going for a dive here with none other than the winningest co-driver in Ultra 4 history, or so he's been called. We've got Jason Berger on with us. Jason, thank you for coming on the show, man. How are you? I'm doing great, Wyatt. Thank you for having me, and uh, that's quite an introduction. I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but thank you. Well, there's a lot of drivers out there, and one particular owes a whole bunch of uh, hardware and glory and sponsors and trajectories and you know just everything to a lot of the hard work that you've put in leading up to getting into the right seat and then doing right seat work for them. That says a lot about you, and they've all said a lot about you, so... We want to get into who you are. Let's do it. Well, <laughs> I almost have to laugh here, but you know, when, when we were doing like uh, the pre-interview stuff, I talked to you at Hammers this year. Uh, well, I came over to see Jason Shearer, and, and that's who you co-drive for, and that's who that's who you. Well, you've co-driven for a lot of people. You've won with JT Taylor. You've won with Shannon Campbell. Have you won with Nick Campbell? No, we did. The only race we did actually where I was co-driving was the Silver State 300, which was my first actual desert race. That was absolute, you know, a dream come true for me um, to get into that car. And, and uh, it was it was actually the car known as Oprah. And uh, they still have that car. <laughs> and then for you, those who don't know the name of that car. <laughs> well, I'm going to get there because I, I do want to know the backstory of that. And then yeah. you've done time with Wayland Campbell. Yep. There's So, I mean, you have been, the, I mean, starstruck. I mean, guys that you, everybody looks up to, you know, winning drivers or in the organization. And there you are kind of in the, you know, shrouded in secrecy, the best, you know, kept secret in a uh, ultra four is this Jason Berger guy, <laughs> even all the way back to the rock sport days, but going back all the way back to the rock sport days, there was a thing called pirate four by four and on pirate four by four, there was, there's a story about how more than 3000 people on pirate saw your junk and stared at your junk and didn't realize they were staring at your junk. What's the story on that? <laughs> wow. What a great way to start the interview. <laughs> it's going to be downhill from here for sure. So that story goes. So, you know, I went to the hammers back in 1997, I think it was. And I had a Bronco on 35s and, you know, we loaded up a couple of the Broncos, didn't know what we were doing at all. Had only ever been on Ford ice or Rubicon um, you know, it's seen some of the videos and and we cruised down there and um, we were broken down at the bottom of Clawhammer and uh, an absolute private pooper needed to get off trail, hiked up this canyon, was like, wow, this is just insane, right? Maybe someday. And so we went back in 2006, I think it was. And, uh, and you probably know Tom Way is a good friend of mine and a couple other people and, and the whole thing was filmed. We went up there and opened up what's called Full of Hate. And, uh, and, you know, it's just a typical hammers weekend before we all started racing where there was just a lot of partying, having a good time. Um, literally, you know, kind of embarrassing to say it's being to open the cooler and be like, uh, oh, we're, we're out of beer. You know, it's only one o'clock <laughs> type of deal. Just a boy's trip. Right. So it, we were up on the, on, on the, on the way back 
and um, getting back to camp. And uh, we just kind of all met in the middle of this one trail. Some people were back at camp. Some people were stood out on the trail. We kind of met up, you know, just being idiots or whatever. We kind of piled all of our cars up on top of each other. Like, you know, we kind of used to do the old days, like drive up on everybody's hood. A little rig stacking. Yeah, exactly. You know. So what had happened is, is a friend of mine who, who passed away a few years ago, his name is Mike Turner. He had handed me his camera and he said, Hey, you know, take some pictures of this. Cause his rig was all piled up there and stuff. And so we did that. And then like four or five days later, uh, Tom Ways had posted this whole trip on pirate, right? It's up there for a couple of days, 3000 views. Tom calls me. He's like, Hey dude, did, um, did Bryce by chance take a picture of his balls, his cock and balls? And I go, no, Bryce wouldn't do that. This is Bryce Johnson, a name you may or may not know. He's been around with Kevin Yoder's team for a long time. Super good dude. And I'm like, no, Bryce wouldn't do that. Like totally something I would do. And, and he's like, did you do it? And I'm like, no, I didn't do that. You know? And literally while like two days later, I'm walking out to my garage. I remember like opening the door and I went, oh no, those are my cock and balls. Um, I remember taking Mike Turner's camera and thinking this is his personal camera, right? So I pulled my pants back, took a shot, and then completely forgot about it. Tom, I guess it's a little embarrassing to say it didn't really look like a real cock and balls, but just posted the picture and called it Campfire Antics. <laughs> and then as he started to look a little bit closer. And so uh, there was a part of me that was is, I don't know. I was a little bit proud that 3000 people had stared at their pirate four by four screen to try and figure out what the hell that was. <laughs> That's terribly yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, how often can you in, in life get an opportunity for 3000 people to stare at your junk? Right. I know that's great. So there, I wanted to hear that story. I kind of <laughs> knew a little bit, but yeah. So back to full of hate though. Yeah. That was, uh, you guys went out there and broke full of hate. Yeah. So I, I kept telling everybody I had this, this great trail in mind. And at that time, you know, Waze was building his car and doing a little bit more competition stuff. Um, I had my buggy and I was doing XRA and, you know, doing U-Rock. And so we had the, the vehicles that were capable of pulling something like that off. And at that time, you know, running the center of that canyon and Tom Ways came up with the name full of hate. That was a, a Trent fabrication. Tom Ways, like whole deal back on when they were good friends. Um, Tom always had that name full of hate. So wanted to name the trail. And then I kind of led it and it was an awesome trail at the time. It was super difficult. Now, you know, we kind of, there's just so many bypasses around everything, but I've got to tell you why, like when I rode with Jason in 2000, is it three years ago? I think it was three years ago. It was the first time we ever ran full of hate. And it was, it was pretty exciting to finally actually run, you know, King of the Hammers and have a trail that I had actually found myself that was in the race. Ah, it's super, I, I guess surreal is the word I put back to it. Like that you were a part of history. You're a part of that original expedition team there. And I mean, you've been a part of rock sports for greater than 20 years. I mean, no surprise. I mean, but it's part, it's kind of cool that now there's so many people have ran that and it's been a recent topic of discussion, but now there's bypasses for all the hard rocks, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, I wouldn't have even attempted to take my Bronco up there on 35s, you know, even lockers front and rear at the, at the time. And now, I mean, other than being a little bit off camber on some of that stuff, it's a bypass all the way around. And when we race, We've got a couple rocks that are a little bit difficult on the way up. It's absolutely nothing on the way down. And uh, Dave's never forced us to run down the center of that. Let's, before we really get into the meat and potatoes of, of who you are, while we're having this still kind of topical discussion about KOH, what is your opinion about the race line? Is it 
the 50 feet either side of the course is still game on uh, when you're in the canyons or should the rule be like from ridge to ridge or should it be you need to if there's rocks in it you need to run the rocks in it you know i'm fine with with pretty much whatever it's just i i can't stand gray areas and and gray areas always create a lot of problems and and unfortunately over the years and it's just like running any business. Like I'm not like throwing Dave under the bus or anything. No, but no, not you, at all. That's not the thought. Right. As you move along, you go, oh man, I didn't think about that, you know? And so, and our goal is it just like when we used to do rock crawling is to be smarter than the person who's setting the course and outthink them. And so when you say 50 feet, either side, that's a pretty good rule. Cause that means you're running the center. But the problem we've had over the years was that some trails were allowed to be up on the ridge. Some trails we had to be down in the center. And as we've progressed, the definition of what that is, I think, has gotten really clear and much better than it was in the past. Do you think on there's some trails that it is now deemed that 50 foot from the, the line is actually 50 foot from the center of the bypass? <laughs> well, yeah, it's I mean, a tough, it's a tough, tough one, right? So it is. And I, you know, the virtual checkpoints have helped fix that problem, you know, then, and there was one on uh jackhammer this past year where you had to stay in the center. And then once you hit that virtual checkpoint, you popped right up onto the left and then you cruised along the road and bypassed the, the center until you got up to the more difficult stuff. We hear this every, every year out of like Dave and JT and company, you know, this is the hardest year, you know, this we've, you know, this year it was, Hey, we've added four new trails. We've had, added guacamole. We've, We've made it harder and harder and harder, and it's still the toughest one-day race, blah, blah, blah. Is it still the toughest one-day race, in your opinion? Because it feels like the leaders come back pretty quick this year. They definitely did in UTV. It didn't seem like a tough race in UTV. Unfortunately, I didn't get to run very far with the UTV race this year. I think Shannon you and, and Shannon, I right? three miles, <laughs> which said a, that's a new PR for me in terms of racing. So I didn't get an opportunity to do that to see how difficult it was, but they were back really fast. And that did surprise me. I didn't think that was going to happen that quickly. But, and I'm sure you spent some time, the UTVs are amazing vehicles. I mean, they truly are. Uh, what you can put those things through is getting, it's not the same as a 4,400, but you know, I mean, we had one this year in our 4400 class that did pretty darn well right i mean and he's a pretty good driver cody miller that's... yeah okay so <laughs> i don't know that it's getting easier um i think that we i i would like to think that we're getting a little bit better at what we're doing and then i'd like to think that that the people who are, are designing the cars are getting that much better in what they're designing i think that's all fair assessments i mean you allowed me to put you on the point there but uh just hot seat for all of it but no, I think that's a somewhat fair assessments on kind of all of them. I don't know what the solution is. I, I do feel like it needs to be, I know it's a challenge and, you know, throwing rocks from the cheap seats here, but it does feel like everybody came, has came back a lot quicker and easier and the finish rates have, there's been somewhat of a scope creep in, uh, in how many finishers you have. So is the solution to continue the status quo, but lengthen the course, go from, 200 to 300 miles or whatever that is uh continue to allow if the course is going to be somewhat uh watered down then let's make it longer let's add in the endurance the the hard endurance of the equipment to where now it's not so much a sprint as much as now it's you actually need to balance the car versus yourself and whatever there i mean that's somewhat of an incomplete thought but 
No, but I, I think that what we need to realize is we're probably, and I, I, I don't know, I, I'm kind of shooting off the cuff here thinking about how many trails, actual rock trails we run. 25, 28, whatever it is, like there's, there's a bunch of them in there. That's probably been pretty similar over the years. Maybe we've added some of those and we've gotten a little bit faster in the rocks. But when I think back to 2009, if Jason and I could run at that time with his car, 75 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour through the whoops, we were, we were moving and we did really well that year. We are doing 120 now. So you know, we can, we can lengthen the course in terms of miles and still be coming back in the same amount of time. If it's a desert portion that we're lengthening, cause we're going 30% faster than we were 10 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that was exactly where I was going. Well, yeah. we, we will dive into KOH and de- deeper into KOH here towards the, the end of our session. But here in the beginning, we're here to talk about you, Jason Berger, <laughs> California guy. Truckee. Yep. Were you born in Truckee or I know you're from the Lake Tahoe area to begin with. So no, I um, moved up here when I was one. I was born in Oakland, California. And then uh, my dad's a, a Berkeley grad and and they both my parents wanted to get out of the Bay Area and, and came up here and actually started, it sounds crazy, but they started an ambulance business in uh, 1973 where they were hired by the, at that time it was hired out by the hospital. And, and that's kind of how we got our startup here. But I've been here ever since. So loose math in my head says you're about to turn 50. I got, I'll be 49 this summer, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm closer to the end than I was to the beginning. <laughs> uh, but you're still killing it though. That's the, that's the cool part. Jason Shear, when he told me about, he told me about an instance with you when he realized that you were legit, like you were the dude, like you were the guy and you guys were uh, snowmobiling. He jumped off like a big mound of snow and, and landed it in some water or something. And you guys are freezing and changing a belt and freezing. And he like was like, oh, crap, we're going to die here. What's the plan? And he finally like musters up like, what's the plan to you? And you're like, well, we're going to fix this belt here. And if we don't get that belt fixed, we've got that's plan A, then plan B and plan C. And he's all of a sudden like, this guy was just cool as a cucumber. I don't know exactly his words to describe you, but he's like, this guy's cool. He's level-headed. In the face of adversity, he's uh, he's already wor- worked through the problems. I'm st- I'm playing catch up over here, and to hear a guy like Jason Shearer say that, wow. Yeah, we uh, that I remember him talking about that incident. It was just a, a spot I thought I could cross the river, and and I ran out of talent the minute I hit the water and and sunk the snowmobile. But yeah, I mean, we can definitely dive into that. I, I don't know if that's something you learn or something you're kind of born with. I've kind of talked to this about friends. You know, I've I've dealt with, I used to own a transportation business and I've dealt with a lot of like really serious accidents. Like I, I pulled a guy out of a burning car. The last one was a cement truck that flipped over and was, you know, full throttle, tire spinning, cab crushed. And, you know, I'm the guy who goes to the car pretty calmly. And then, you know, we've, I've kind of discussed with my wife a little bit too, like, is that something you're born with or something you learn? I think it's something you're born with to stay calm in pretty intense situations. And so that's just kind of, kind of seems to be my personality. I kind of think it's a, I'm sure that there is a technical term for this from the psychology standpoint, but I tend to call it the firefighter complex. Like you're the guy who, when the building's on fire, there's those couple guys that are running into the fire, not everyone else who's running out. And you find those. Yeah. And it, it's interesting though, like you say that, cause I'm going to throw myself under the bus here a little bit. Cause, cause I am the guy I run into the fire, but I will tell you a story about one night my wife and I woke up and heard a loud bang in the bathroom or in the kitchen somewhere in the house. And we got up and I'm, I'm butt naked. She's got a couple of like bull clothes on and we're walking out and I'm, I'm behind her. Okay. And so we walk out and we look down the entryway 
you know, like the little hallway going out to the garage where the laundry room is and the garage doors open like the man door. And my wife goes, I wonder what's out there. And I said, real quiet, I said, it's not what's out there that I'm worried about. It's what's inside. And I walked back to our bedroom and left my wife sitting there <laughs> and she continued to the garage. So there's just some incidences in my life where I'm like, wow, I am the big Sally. But she was like, what are you doing leaving me behind? And I'm like, look, I, I was going back where I knew it was safe in case we needed to call on the phone to somebody to help us out. I wasn't going to be getting attacked by the bear, which was in our house. But anyhow, it was a bear. Uh, yeah, it had come in our house and then and then left, and uh, it something spooked it, and it it went out there. So Tom Ways has a bear story too, doesn't he? Like he killed a bear in his house. It's the best bear story in the entire world. I mean, really. And and when I've talked to Tom about that, I'm like, do you realize like and you know, we can go into the story if you'd want to, but um, basically at the end of that story, when he called me, I was like, do you realize how much of a man you are? Like, I, I was like, did your wife at the time he was married, I'm like, did she fly back and have sex with you immediately? Because I would have been the opposite. I would have been in the car with the windows up on the phone, calling somebody to help me, not taking yeah. care of the bear by myself. <laughs> I, I think this is the perfect Easter egg. We'll leave that right there. And we'll let Tom tell this story at some point in the it. future. Perfect. But that is a great Easter egg because that story yep. is something that, that, I mean, that story is just something else. So growing up single, single kid or you have siblings? Nope. nope. I have a younger sister, three years younger. Very cool. Does she live at still out in the same area? The well, so Reno is really close to us. It's about 30 miles away. It's in Nevada, but uh, she lives down there in Reno. She's a, a really good, um, badass real estate agent. My parents still have their house up here, but they're looking to sell it. You know, they're in their seventies now and kind of tired of dealing with the snow and, and they bought a house down in Reno also. Just m moving down the slope. Yep. Nice. And then growing up, I know you went to college on baseball, but were you always to play baseball? Were you always, uh, an athletic kid growing up, you know, curiosities kind of you as a kid. Yeah. I, I mean, I would like to think that I'm, I'm fairly athletic, but only I'm not one of those people who's good at everything that they touch. Like I was a terrible snow skier, absolutely terrible. And I grew up in Tahoe. I just, I, I couldn't seem to, to get very good at that. Um, but baseball was, was for sure my sport. Um, I dabbled in football. Uh, my dad was actually uh, drafted by the Raiders out of high school and then got hurt in spring training. And then that's when he ended up going to college. But um, so I, he didn't let me play football until my freshman year. And then my freshman and sophomore year, I played football. And then uh, I actually started getting scouted by the Kansas City Royals the end of my sophomore year. And so I quit playing football and I completely focused on baseball. And you're good enough to go to college for, with it for a couple of years. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, that says sure. a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I did. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a long story. It's a boring story for people, but I, I did have a couple opportunities with some, with some scholarships to do some different things. You know, I basically went, um, to call, went to Sac State for a little while and, and then left and went down to Modesto JC and, and basically saw people coming back at 30 years old, had been playing single A ball for 10 years and, and starting their job at FedEx. And, uh, I, I just had this moment of like, I'm not good to go now. Um, this year, or I'm going to stop playing. And, uh, I kept, they kept saying, give it more time. And, and maybe I was just too impatient, but, uh, didn't get drafted that year and, and just moved back up to Tahoe and started my life. And you've been, you've been good. I mean, your life's been great. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, what I have absolutely zero complaints, right? There you go. And one thing I found out most interesting about you, I'm not about most interesting. I mean, it's something that was a, a huge carrot when I talked to you at King of the Hammers was that 
when you were in college that you were studying psychology to be like a counselor and effectively you, you are, you've de facto backed yourself into a counselor role with your uh, business Dreamtown CrossFit. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I was going to study that. Even when I was in high school, I was kind of like, I don't know, the the counselor in high school amongst, you know, friends and things like that. And then uh, as we moved on, like even going wheeling, um, I and I, I didn't like it very much in my 20s and 30s, but I always referred to, okay, dad, you know, that type of thing, which was kind of a negative thing in my life back then. I have embraced it now. I like it. To me, it's, it's a compliment. The one thing that I find that's cool about what you and I have talked about, you know, just in briefly in passing, but I know is going on in your head is the convincing people, the mind over matter, the mind over muscle, that what they can accomplish if they just set their mind to it, that it's their mind that quits before their body quits and getting someone to exert and give you that extra 10 reps or that extra three reps or that extra whatever, and then giving them the motivation to stay on it is quite rewarding. It is. Absolutely. I'd like to think that at what I do for a living now is, is helping change people's lives. Um, and, and I know that I, that I am having an impact on that. What I get back from everybody that I see every day, I feel like is, is tenfold for what I'm giving them. Um, it, it is, I absolutely love being a coach. So in the gym, are you the, uh, the loved guy or are you the kind of dreaded drill sergeant? I'm not the drill sergeant. So my baseball career, my junior and senior year, I had a terrible baseball coach. Um, he was very, very physical with us. And I, I just, he would scream and yell and he hit us with baseball bats. And long story short, I got him fired at the end of my senior year. And uh, so I am not that coach. I am not going to scream at you unless you really ask me to do it. If I know you're that athlete, I'm going to tell you to pick up a fucking bar right now and keep moving. But that is not my go-to. My go-to is more calming and staying very positive. So, you know, for example, you know, keep moving instead of don't stop. The don't stop is the negative, right? You're going to concentrate immediately on that. Keep moving is more the cues that I'll use. I'm more of that positive coach than the screaming coach. But that's also cool in the fact that you can draw on that experience from that previous coach and, and you realize, you know, not every learning experience is positive. You can have learning experiences that are negative or take a, a negative experience and turn it into a learning experience where you know, through failure that what you believe to see that guy's failure shortcomings and his, his methods were, you were able to apply that today and say, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do it because that was a successful way. I'm going to do it this way because I know that way didn't feel successful to me. You are a hundred percent correct. And I, I talk about stuff like that all of the time. That person in my life at that time sucked. And for 10 years, I had very vivid intense, aggressive dreams of like, I mean, like literally shoving his head through a windshield and pulling it back through and ripping his throat out. Like, and I'm not that guy. I'm the last guy you're going to see get in a fight, but he was a huge part in who I am today. So I'm actually very thankful that I went through that stuff because he helped mold me who I am. There's a great story. And I can't remember exactly what book it's from, but it's a psychologist that interviews a, uh, a set of twin brothers. And one is a multimillionaire and one is living underneath a bridge, I think in Southern California. OK, 
guy, homeless. And he interviews the uh, the multimillionaire and the millionaire says, look, my dad was a piece of shit. He was an alcoholic. He beat up my mom, drugs, couldn't hold a job, you know, the whole list. And he said, so I had no choice but to go this direction. And he went to the homeless person, the brother, the twin. And the brother said, yeah, you know, my dad was a piece of shit, alcoholic, beat up my mom, was into drugs, couldn't hold a job. I had no choice. Right. So I, I love that example of you can either use that, have that victim mentality and use it to slow you down or you can reverse it and use it to propel you. Right. It's the positive mold or the negative mold. It's still a mold. It's how you choose to perceive it. You know, even with what we're doing right now, I try and send out consistent emails to uh, my athletes about, you know, staying on top of this and, and, you know, taking control of the one aspect you can con- take control of every day. And that's actually getting your hour workout in. When we go back to work, whether they get a cure for COVID-19, all these things are completely out of our control. So we take on the things that we can control and we can control, at least for Dreamtown CrossFit, we can control that hour a day that we give to ourselves and we go work out. Well, I mean, you bring up a very good part of what's going on in the world. You know, the, the COVID thing, and, you know, a lot of the people with this, you know, shelter in place or stay at home orders or whatever you want to call it in your different jurisdiction, that really is a, I mean, it's a suck on the economy, but it is a mental suck being told that, you know, we're a freedom loving country for the most part, I say for the most part, but being stuck in your house, even, you know, uh, rural America, not that big of a deal, but ur- urban America, I mean, being told that you can't go out and uh, not socialize, the the removal of socialization in our society aside from certain ages, you know, like my son, he's fine. He's 12. He plays video games and he's got text and he's got his phone. He's great. I think he'd be fine with this going on for perpetuity until he gets to the point yep. where he gets wants to be around girls or something. But my eight-year-old daughter, well, she's nine, sorry. My nine-year-old daughter, she did just have a birthday. Uh this is hard on her. She just wants to see your girls. Like they're not playing video games with each other. They're nine-year-old girls. They want to do each other's hair and do TikTok dances and record them and post. They they want that interaction and they're not getting it. And it's driving it's driving everyone in my house insane just by one child being told you know you just can't socialize. So from a grand scheme of a, a population being told that, and if just in my house, that's 25% of the population is going crazy. Well, to imagine what 25% of the population in the U S does or globally does. So yeah, you've, it, I think that's amazing that you're doing that. The, I guess that's the adversity, right? You're trying to keep in front of your guys, your people, your customers, your clients, your friends, and tell them, you know, hold your chin up and, uh, get through this. And I, yeah, I guarantee that's right. As soon as they, they get some challenges out of the, out of their day, sweat a little, they feel like they've had some success a little bit of success goes a long ways. It does. I mean, it's not that we should ignore any of those other things, but we do not possess the power to change them. I can't change the shelter in place. Neither can you. Somebody else is going to do that. So it's on my mind of when I'm going to be able to open my gym back up, but I don't give it that much thought or that much power to absolutely control my day. How long have you been shut down now? Six weeks? So two months? Yeah, we shut down March 18th. I actually shut down before we went shelter in place. Uh, my wife is an RN. Uh, she works in surgery, so she kind of had her finger on the pulse of what was going on. And and I actually have a tremendous amount of RNs, PAs, and doctors at my CrossFit gym 
which is awesome too. Right. Um, and so I had the influence of them, you know, basically saying, do the right thing, have that community mindset. We should shut down early. And, and we had already put things in process of like, we're known as having one of the cleanest gyms that people think in the world. I don't know if that's true or not, but we do keep a very, very clean gym. But even on top of that, you know, we were doing the social distancing. We were separating. I had made my classes eight or less. We'd gone 10 or less then we'd gone eight or less. Like we had made them really small, but it just became like, it seemed like the right thing to do, you know? And, and so we shut down March 18th. So yeah, you're over two months now. Yeah, we're, uh, well, a month. A month. I'm sorry. We're, we're yeah, into yeah. the second month for, for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I just heard, uh, our governor Newsom just today had said that gyms are going to be in phase three, uh, which we're in phase two right now where some surgeries or, you know, elective surgeries are coming back into the hospitals. So we're probably still, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping for June 1st, but reality is it, it may be a little bit longer than that. You know, I, you know, I don't go off on the whole CrossFit thing because JT said, you know, hey, how do you know Jason does CrossFit? He'll tell you he does CrossFit. <laughs> but one of the things with CrossFit is we are so community based. We love to see each other every single day. It is the absolute hook for CrossFit. I, we, we hug each other and high five and fist bump. And that is the actual fitness, the actual exercise that we do is only about 20 minutes of that hour long class. There's so much BSing and camaraderie and, and, and we are absolutely family. So my family is hurting right now. And I don't mean just my family at home, but my 120 other members of my family not being able to hug each other and, and high five and work out together has been just what you were talking about with your, your nine-year-old. It's, it's extremely difficult. Well, I mean, CrossFit aside, I think that's a great example, but I mean, we see even outside of what's going on, like, like let's say church, use church as an example. People will go to church but what happens when people end up with a community around their church, then they all start going on a regular basis because there's a little bit of that, I don't know, uh, I don't want to not go. Not necessarily a fear of missing out, but something of a fear of letting down their community by not being yep. there. And yep. and that's power, that is a powerful motivator. That's a powerful motivator to go to the gym. That's a powerful motivator to, I mean, well, that's why people get workout partners, right? Absolutely. And it's somebody to keep you accountable. And um, CrossFit gyms across the world, including mine, will not have trouble in terms of getting back on their feet with their communities, that their athletes that can afford to do it, right? Whether they have a job and they can pay $175 a month because it's expensive, that who knows, time will tell on that. Right. But I actually think your example of, of church, we talk about that a lot, right? If you move into a different community, um, in a different state and you belong to a church before you leave, you're going to look for that same type of community when you go into that, that next state. And that's going to help bring you in. You're going to find like-minded people. And that's what CrossFit is. Um, I'm a, I'm an absolute hugger. I, I just, I'm one of those people who, who needs contact. And, uh, a funny thing just happened. You know, I haven't seen Jason since KOH. And he's on his way to Utah right now to move his brother, Casey, to St. George. And uh, he came by to drop off some tires. We just couldn't. I haven't hugged anybody but my wife and my kid in the last six weeks, seven weeks. And I couldn't not hug Jason. <laughs> right. I was just like, you know, just could not do it. So, yeah. So Lance and Renee, they've convinced part of the family to to move to Utah too. So when is is there a, something of a domino effect? It's been a little bit slow. St. George <laughs> right. Hurricane yeah. is pretty Isn't attractive. Kind of, 
Isn't that kind of a Utah thing? I get right? oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, it is. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, yeah, that's, um, it's, it would only be awkward if they all start taking on multiple spouses. That would be, right. but if they get a compound and they all live within that compound, I can see that working, right? You know, um, yeah, exactly. We, anybody who has children knows, knows this, um, having kids is extremely difficult and, you know, you rely on family a lot to help you through that, especially in those beginning stages. And with Casey's injury that happened last year, I mean, we're almost coming up in a year. I think we're probably what, nine months now, you know, they, they had some really difficult times and I, and I, I haven't talked to Casey in a lot of depth about this, but kind of reevaluated things and, and needed to be closer to family. And so I think Marcy really wanted to be back near there with Renee and, and, um, you know, I know that, that Lance and Casey get along really well. And so I hope it's the right decision for him. His wreck at Reno was just gnarly as it gets just yard sale end over end over end. How would it go over his UTV went over like nine times, just nose tail broke his back. I mean, just as nasty as it gets. He got, he got lucky. Even how they pulled him out of that wreck, he got lucky because he could have definitely been um, paralyzed. And, and I don't know if you follow any of the stuff that he did, you know, I went and saw him in the hospital and, and, you know, you talk about the psychology. We, we sat down and talked about that of like, this isn't a negative thing in your life right now. It seems like it, but let's use this as a pivotal point to change our life for the better. And I actually think Casey, um, from when I've talked to him is doing that. Yeah, you have to find the silver lining. That's that's what pulls it through. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest edition, Recovery Rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a custom splice solution. Now, back to the show. So you're you're married, Andrea. Yep. She's a registered nurse, 26 years together, is that right? 26 years. That, Going man, on 20, 27 this summer. I'd say that sounds like a very, very long time. I just had 15 with my wife. It sounds like a long time, but then when you say you're almost 50, I'm like, well, I mean, then that seems just about right. You got married in your mid twenties. Yeah. That's, that's life, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, say, was I 20, yeah, 21, 21 when we got married, she wasn't even, she couldn't even legally drink at our wedding. And, um, you know, we're just, we got, you know, we fell in love. I found the right person and, um, we beat the odds. You know, um, statistically, we shouldn't have made it this long. Statistically, you shouldn't have made it this long. So good for you too. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. With uh, 
especially this day and age. And now as we progress through, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands with technology and now social media rolling into the late two thousands. I mean, the, the stories you hear about, you know, the, the Facebook and all of that and how many lives have been destroyed by that. That's, um, that's frustrating technology. I, I I'm a firm believer in using technology daily in life to for further forward, everything, you know, reduction in human capital, uh, uh, you know, streamlining processes, but that's been a negative. That's one of the negatives of social media is the, uh, I guess the undermining of the relationship or the cheapification of it. Maybe that's, yep. I don't know if that's a real word, but I'm going to use it. That's frustrating. But so yeah, registered nurse, she's the glue of your family supports everything you do, all your crazy ideas. You want to go racing in Baja? She's like, okay. And then worries with anxiety that you're going to come back. <laughs> You know, she's always been that way. Uh, she has put up with, and I think that every guy has got this story when they found, uh, I, I'm not a like soulmate believer. I think that's a bunch of crap, but I found the right person. Yeah. She's always, she's always believed in me and always supported everything I've done to stupid stuff. Like when we did you rock and, you know, I took a second out on the house so I could get my buggy and become this superstar that, that I thought everybody was going to be right. And she's always been there right by my side. She's also the person to, you know, she lets me know when I'm being an asshole. So she, she plays the role well. <laughs> I don't know if this is real or not, but for, for me, it feels like you find the person that you're most willing to compromise with and com compromise for, right? I'm not, my, my wife is not my perfect spouse and I'm not her perfect spouse, but together with the way our compromises mesh, we just jive and it just works and it, and I love her and she loves me and we love our kids and we've made these beautiful babies. And hopefully when she's having her highs in life, they, they match up with my lows so she can pull me up and then vice versa the other ways. It's, I think it's when you, you know, both spouses end up, maybe they don't compromise well with each other. Or they butt heads on the exact same item and their lows match. So when they're on the bottom they're it's tearing them apart, which, I think this COVID thing, I bet, you know, there's going to be a, a slew of divorces come out of COVID. Just folks who just uh, realize I love that person, but I can't be around them this much. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And there's a, I've seen a bunch of memes and stuff like that kind of going on uh, about that. And, um, you know, when, when you think about it, um, and, and, you know, I have a kid who's 16 and, he, and he's going to be looking at maybe going to college, trade school, whatever he decides to do. And I think it's um, absolutely ridiculous that at 20 years old, he's going to need to try and figure out what he wants to do for the rest of his life. How many times have you, I don't even know with, with you, Wyatt, but changed the direction of what you want to do for a living throughout your entire life because you realized it was the wrong thing. And you thought when you were 18 that you wanted to do that. You were a hundred percent. And I think that's the same way marriage can be also, you know, that is a really difficult decision to make, especially when you're really young, like I was this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life because do you really know what the rest of your life means? Like 50 seems possibly dead and I'm right there. Right. But when I was 25, pff, we don't need to talk about 50. Right. And I'm now, right. So look, everybody who gets married loves each other a hundred percent. Like there's aren't people who aren't getting married who don't love each other. And it's just like you said, sometimes you find out that as you go through those years of your marriage that you um, those compromising that was a great example. You know, she picks me up when I'm down, I pick her up when she's down. And, um, when she's really busy, I'm doing the stuff that maybe she normally does around the house. When I'm really busy, she's doing the stuff I normally do. And, and, you know, just as a, 
you know, like I had perfectly when you said a compromise. Right. So she's a nurse and, uh, what portion or part of the medical profession is she in? Is she still staying busy through this or is she one of the medical professionals that isn't busy now? So what had happened with her, she works in surgery. And so when we went, when they stopped surgeries, she basically didn't have a job. And so her boss came to her and said, look, you can go in the COVID-19 unit, which is basically three months that you're going to be in there. And then you'll have to quarantine and everything to come back to surgery. Or they offered her a position where she could actually be part of a team of three where they were basically writing the policies and procedures, infectious control team leading with, with what the CDC says to do and putting those policies in place for the hospital. And so that's what she did, which her very first week and going through documents from the CDC back from December, which just so you guys know, like I actually have somebody in my family who saw documents from the CDC in December and beginning of January warning of what was going to happen. <laughs> Reading all the way back through that, it was a very stressful time for her. Now that we flatten the curve and she's actually going to be going back to surgery now, she's not doing that anymore, that infectious control. They've got everything in place for the hospital and, and good to go. So she didn't have to go on, on the front lines. Um, she did have to go to all of the different departments to teach them these different procedures, which one of them was, you know, our COVID unit ICU. So she was, you know, there and, you know, possibly introduced to it. As far as we know, we've never, we haven't had it. Right. Um, she's going back to her normal job. Um, but I have been on an interesting side of this, you know, and I kind of said this to you a little bit, it being a small business owner and being like, look, I, I gotta get, I gotta make some money. Like I need my business to be successful. Like I can't just shut this down. I, we have to move forward and I'm on that side of it. And then I have my wife at the hospital who's a nurse who's on that side of it. So in our house, I it's understand it. I, we get, I get both of them. You know, I really do. Have you done like any Zoom sessions or anything like that? Well, we do two Zoom classes a day. So we have a nine o'clock Zoom and a five o'clock Zoom. That's when I, we had to do this at two o'clock because I have to coach class tonight. And, and that's great. You know, it's not the same thing, but it sets a time of day where the athletes know we can all see each other. And I'm going to say three, two, one, go. And then and we're going to do a workout. No, that's pretty cool. That's a good pivot. Yep. And that's what we're learning. You know, we're, if, if anything comes out of this, we're learning how to pivot. We're learning how to be successful in very suboptimal conditions in a state of affairs. CrossFit's uh, thing is constantly varied, high intensity functional movement. So we're on the constantly varied section right now. <laughs> right. Uh, we mentioned you, you guys have a, you and Andrea, you have a son, 16 yep. years old. Yep. Barrett. Okay. Okay. Yep. And then, uh, if I'm right, you guys named him after a trail on the Rubicon. Yeah. I wish I had a better story. I, I wish I conceived on the trail or something, but I, it's not <laughs> just uh Barrett Lake trail. Uh, it's Jeep trail that, um, not many people know about, but it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And as we were just searching for names, we're like, well, Rubicon doesn't seem like a very good kid name and neither does Fordyce. And then all of a sudden Barrett came up and we didn't know anybody named Barrett. And we, we really love that name. Barrett Berger is a solid name. Thanks. That's a, that's a powerful name. Like that's what we, you know, we sat around and had the, I think everyone does that, right? You want to set your kid up with uh, the best name you see as you see fit. Right. And try to give them, at least in our house, we try to give them the old power names. You're you're hundred percent right, especially when you have a boy. And uh, some of our very best friends, uh, Keith and Emily, just had a baby, and their baby's name is Axel Erickson. And I'm like, that is just badass. Like that kid's just going to be a stud, right? He's either going to be an MMA fighter or a heavy right. metal rock star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Axel Erickson, great name. No, that is uh, that's good. Now, 
COVID has affected Barrett though, right? I believe you told me he turned 16, so he's close to getting his driver's license or he got it, his driver's license or his birthday is April Fool's Day, baby. Um, April 1st. And, uh, he was, he's been kicking ass. He's got a, uh, he's got a 98 Jeep XJ sitting on sixties with 37s. That's ready to go rock the trail. And, and he's driven it the last couple of years on the trail. And he was supposed to take his drive test on April 6th. And with our DMB, I have no idea when it's ever going to happen. And he is dealing with it really well. It kind of seems like this generation is not as excited to get their license as not my at all. generation was. Yeah. Like I would be losing my shit right now if I couldn't get my driver's license. And he's like, well, yeah, it sucks. And well, we're going to go on Discord and play some Fortnite. Like, okay. <laughs> this is almost going to sound like a dig on California. Doesn't a majority of your population not have driver's licenses anyway? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I actually don't know the, the answer to that. But I will tell you, amongst his friends, he's the only one who's that excited to get the, his driver's license. They just don't. It's just so different to me. Yeah, I had a coworker a few years ago who all of his children, they were right there in that high school phase and no motivation. They still wanted mom to drive him around at 17 years old. And I was just like, what? I mean, my father <laughs> drove me. I, tur I turned some... From Kansas, we could get a hardship license at 14. I turned 14 on a Saturday. On that Monday, my dad picked me up from eighth grade, middle school, eighth grade in Paola, Kansas, and drove me to one town over where they had a licensing station. I got my license, my hardship, and I drove back to school. I never rode the school bus again from eighth grade on. That was right. it. It was yep. I, I like it was like I I'm done. Like as soon as we were allowed to get a license, we're done. We're like that's it. Now today I just my head doesn't process that. Like, what do you mean you don't want your license? You don't want that freedom? What? Yeah. I told my kid, I said, if you don't get your license and don't take this seriously, if you're going to count on me, I will charge you. This is Uber. I will be charging you for driving you back and forth. I am not doing that. And, uh, but he's always, he's wanted to get it. So it, that hasn't been a problem. It just sucks for him right now. Well, that's awesome. I can't, well, tell him good luck. I hope he's, hopefully he's studying for it. Right. If he's already been driving on the trails, he's good. You know, he's good. Yep. No, he's good. Kind of jump out of turn here. When I was going through your stuff and, and kind of researching who Jason Berger is, I came across this. Well, it's an amazing deal. It's a, a philanthropy called Backcountry Access. Tell me about how you and your wife ended up doing Backcountry Access. And if I kind of got it right, it's you guys were doing like a, it was a volunteer organization where you took disabled individuals out and experienced outdoors like trail riding. Absolutely. Um, so how it started, I grew up in a very philanthropic family. My parents are always doing something or trying to do something for other people. And like even for Christmas, when I grew up, we had a choice, my sister and I, we could receive a gift ourselves or we could give a gift to somebody. It's just always been something my family was about. And so I started volunteering for an organization called Disabled Sports USA 20 years ago or something like that. And I was volunteering for their water ski program. And I, and I absolutely loved it. So we take people with disabilities on a private lake and they've got a special water ski set up. I mean, even somebody who's a quad could actually still water ski behind the boat with the way we had this set up. The amount of joy that I received seeing the smile on their faces was I, nothing in my life will duplicate that. It was absolutely life changing for me. I, I was absolutely hooked. Their vice president at the time had come to me and said, look, we're trying to, there's their state grant money um, to, to start a program like this, but we don't have anybody who has the knowledge you have. Because basically most of the volunteers were not motorheads. 
Okay. And I don't know if that looks bad on us, but I was the only one who actually probably knows what a V8 was, <laughs> right? let alone lockers and tires and all this stuff. So they came to me and we worked in, in um, conjunction with, with Cal4 at the time. Uh, Cal4 would bring me the volunteers. We applied for the state grant. We got some money to get the program going. Um, I would bring the people, uh, disabled sports. I basically put disabled sports and Cal4 together and be the leader of this. And we would take people with disabilities in the backcountry. It was incredible what we did for them. It was also at a time when trails are getting shut down and the backcountry is getting shut down. And for you and, and me right now, if we think about the backcountry getting shut down, it sucks. But if we still wanted to visit the backcountry, we can throw our backpack on and we can cruise back to that lake. Well, if you're paraplegic, you're not getting back to that lake. So there's a very political side to this to keep trails open so that people with disabilities can have access to those places via a vehicle. And so that was kind of the basis of the whole program. So that went on for, um, I mean, we did for three or four years, we did, I think, 20 trips a summer, day trips. I mean, we were like three weekends a month doing this. And uh, it, it was amazing. And you guys started that in the late 90s. Yep. And then went all the way until two years ago, a year ago. You know, most of those grants are good for about three years. Sometimes you can get them for about five years. And so, cause they, they expect the program to be able to be self-sustaining by then. And so we, we ran that program where we were doing a ton of those day trips for five years. And then I think we went on on for about 10 years where we were still doing day trips, just not as many day trips. And then um, before that was up, we had also, I had always had this dream of doing, uh, an overnighter into the Rubicon where we were three days and two nights, but logistically it was something pretty difficult to pull off, especially when you're dealing with people with meds and, and, um, we couldn't take any kind of disability back there. We kind of had to, uh, you know, pick and choose with who we thought could be able to handle being back there for three days and two nights. And uh, so we moved into that overnight program, which was, I think we ran for, I'm, I'm just kind of guessing there, I think around 15 years. Wow. And then you had some, you know, great volunteers that you said, you know, with Cal4, but even uh, like Dave Cole, Dave Cole came up and volunteered. Yeah. So Cal4 was only while we had the state grant. So whether I think it was three or four years where we had them involved. And then, um, you know, I, I'd been around rock sports for so long and you know, the people we hang out with, you know, the 70,000 people that are on that lake bed will do anything for you. They're the raddest people in the entire world. And I knew that with all of my friends that I had met Whelan, I just needed to bring the program to them. They may not go do it on their own, but I knew if I could bring the program to them that they would just absolutely love this. And so we had kind of built a huge like volunteer list. And so uh, we had moved past doing anything with Cal four and basically just Andrea and I were getting volunteers together and working with disabled sports. And when we started the the Rubicon that had nothing to do with Cal four at the time, that was just uh, Andrea and I kind of running that program. And, you know, I'm just was so excited because I just like if if I was still running it, why I'd be on you, like, come out and do this with me because I just want to see that smile on your face or that tear in your eye of how it is it is absolutely life changing. Um, it's the highlight of this person's year. Well, isn't that something you you like to share with your friends, right? You share your elatement yeah. and you're talking about that very first time getting the person to water ski and just the light it turns on in, in your soul and your heart and just pouring out of every pore of your body of how good it is. I can see how, yeah, that you would want to share that with all your friends. Like, Hey, I want you to come experience what this type of philanthropy is this, this giving and see what it does to your soul. 
Yeah. Yeah. Dave, Dave came up and did it. And, um, you know, little rich came and, and I didn't see little rich forever. And then this last year I was in Zion and, um, you know, reached out to him and, and we started talking and it wasn't till then. I mean, we're talking 10 years later after he volunteered for me that he said, part of his whole trail hero project is doing something philanthropic like that because of the influence of that program. And I literally like started to tear up of like, Oh my God, I had that kind of impact on somebody. I was so, so stoked on it. Yeah. That'll kick you into high gear right there. Oh man. It was, it was awesome. And then that, that effectively ended a couple of years ago, but finally economically you, the insurance went away. It did. And the story's too long, but basically three years ago, I had a pretty decent incident with somebody that I had been taking on these trips for, for 10 years. Someone I I absolutely love dearly. I don't know if his, he had cerebral palsy and it was the most difficult thing I've ever dealt with in my entire life, Wyatt. I literally had to hogtie this person and haul them, I mean, duct tape their hands behind their back and their feet together. Their meds were completely off. They completely lost it. And um, I had to have the sheriffs follow me out of the Rubicon to make sure that we were safe and meet medical people. And the insurance carrier, I don't think ever knew of that situation. But shortly thereafter, they the insurance was cut and they didn't want to cover that event anymore. And it was just a, a moment of me going, I, you know, the organization called me and told me we got our insurance cut. And I said, I get it. And they said, really? And I said, I, I get it. Like, I, I, I wouldn't insure my own events. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, we're, we're so far from the hospital. If somebody gets bit by a snake or somebody forgot their meds or somebody um, like my friend Bodie at the time and just was not having a, a great weekend, like I get it. And so I really didn't push that hard to keep it going. And I just stepped back to take a little bit of a break. Um, I'm sure if we wanted to get the insurance, we could probably raise the money. And I'm sure that, you know, there are insurance companies out there. You just, right. You pay enough, whether it's 20 grand or 50 grand or whatever, they'll, they'll insure the event. <laughs> it's just, it's going to be cost a lot of money. But isn't that kind of the world that you and myself and certainly most of my listeners kind of live in? We like that world where we do things that we know we couldn't even get insurance for it if we if we tried like that is that's the world like where where we feel the most alive is in between you know either dead and insurance right it's just <laughs> yeah most of the things i seem to do in life that seem to be right there yeah right, right on it yeah no i am um, i mean there's a part of me that's that's sad that we're not doing it. My son's been doing that trip since he was three years old. And uh, I truly believe that it's had a huge impact on the person that he is today. Uh, he is not uncomfortable around anybody. And uh, so being around people with disabilities, just they're just like everybody else. And him growing up around that, I think, um, I, I just truly believe it had a huge impact on him. And I'm kind of bummed that when he's now going to have his driver's license, that he wasn't actually able to bring somebody into the Rubicon as his passenger. Yeah, right. Wow. Yep. Wow. Hey, all good things must come to an end. That thing running for 20 years just sounds absolutely amazing. And the lives that you touched over that time period, that's priceless, completely priceless. Yeah. And they touched mine, Wyatt. Like I, uh, it is hard for me and, and we all have our pain. We all deal with our own pain on a daily basis. Uh, but my perspective has changed when I'm having a b- bad day. 
you know what? It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Okay. And, and they reminded me of something. And I talk about this, you know, in CrossFit a lot too, is we are referred to as tabs, temporarily able-bodied. Unless you die quickly, in a car accident or something like that, you will deal with a disability at some point in time in your life. How prepared are you for that? Right? Um, yeah, that's sobering. Yeah, so, yeah, but it always made me kind of think about that. Like, you know, um, yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, not to go on a whole spiel here with what's going on with our country and COVID-19, but there's a reason why we're also terrified of COVID-19. And it's because 80% of our population is that unhealthy that if they actually get it, there is a possibility because they have an underlying chronic, underlying chronic condition that they are going to be in the hospital. If we were not obese and we were not having hypertension and we did not have, you know, all these other chronic conditions, we can most likely play through this. And I know there's people are going to hear this and be like, yeah, but I heard this person was in perfect health and 35 and died. Yes, that happens. But if we look at the majority of that, right? So, you know, not to go off on that whole tangent with COVID-19, but you know, when, when I am with disabled sports, when I am having a bad day and it's a legitimate bad day, I have good reasons to have that. I do reflect back on what those people deal with on a daily basis, just getting out of bed, um, not being able to drive a vehicle, not having a job, being stuck at home, whatever. It put it in perspective for me that it's not that bad. Quit whining. And th- right there, that little sentence you motivated Awesome. <laughs> no, I did. You, I'm laughing uh, tongue in cheek. I'm like, man, stop describing me. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> Let's move, move on down the road a little bit. Okay. Jason, the entrepreneur, you've done a lot of things in, over your career, but your most late, your latest venture, Dreamtown Fitness. How did you sit back at the breakfast table or the dinner table or at a booth at a bar and go, I'm going to open a CrossFit gym? Well, and a JT would say you know, like, Hey man, I need something to go tell everybody about what should it be? <laughs> well, as most things in my life, there is a phenomenal story <laughs> as to how this gym opened. Um, so I coached locally here at another CrossFit gym here in Truckee for six years, almost six years as my family. I absolutely loved it. One of the owners did something that was absolutely outrageous to a female coach and very good friend of mine and refused, refused to apologize for it. So outrageous that I went there the next day, handed him my keys. And I said, I, there was two owners at the time and there were two CrossFit gyms. I went to the other owner and said, I cannot work for this individual ever again. And I turned in my keys and I left. Those two gym owners split over the incident and the one gym owner that I didn't get along with stayed here in Truckee. The other gym owner who I get along with great still has his gym in Kings Beach. So when I quit, I started working out in my garage. Pretty soon I had 25 to 30 athletes in my garage that wanted to stay with their coach. And so um, when it was February 1st, 2019, I guess it was. So 18, I can't, I can't remember exactly. They had split those two businesses apart and I knew the guy that I wasn't getting along with anymore was staying here in Truckee. And so we opened up Dreamtown CrossFit. It was close to the end of May that year. 
And um, anyhow, uh, that business is now done. They closed their doors. So we put them out of business. But all of my, I didn't actually like sit on the couch and decide, hey, let's open a CrossFit gym. <laughs> I had quit and, um, and then decided that this could be a really negative thing in my life or let's turn it into a positive thing. And so we opened up Dreamtown CrossFit. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine. This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing, and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the Talent Tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Branding hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5.8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Branding my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Brennick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brennick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small. They're amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brennick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy Pre-Runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to indiana did i mention i've met a land speed racing team that runs brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour yeah to ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs or looking to put your race car on the podium call stan and brandon at brannick 260-467-1808 or on the web at brannickmotorsports.com brannick is a full service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs if they don't have it they can make it now, back to the show. How did you come up with the name? That's my wife. So my wife, so there's over 15,000 affiliates in the world and you can't have a name like anybody else's. So most CrossFit gyms nowadays um, are just basically naming themselves after the street they're on. CrossFit, you know, Deerfield, which is the street they were on. And that was just stupid. And uh, And I'm not a very creative person. So... My wife came up with Dreamtown CrossFit and I said, there's no way we're going to do a search and it's going to be taken. And she goes, nope, won't be taken. And I said, why? And she goes, because it's so soft. Every CrossFit gym is we're going to stick your dick in the dirt CrossFit to quote my wife. And (laughs) she's right. And she goes, it doesn't need to be that intense. It scares everybody away. And she's right. There's this thing that CrossFit's so intense and everybody's going to get hurt. And, and I'm, I'm dispelling that. Okay. It's not that way. There are gyms out there that are ran that way. And it's terrible for those people and for CrossFit in general. But her thought was we live in a dream town, you know, Truckee, California, right next to Lake Tahoe. It's, it's absolutely a dream town. And, uh, and I love it. 
and that's uh that's how we got that name man i like it that's a good story and if you talk to jt jason tom Dave Cole, any of those people, they'll tell you that I'm the softest person they know. (laughs) So it absolutely fits. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) And then out of that, so you're coaching at one. Now, all of a sudden, you guys are working out of your garage. You end up having to open your own deal. And then you've built the program there. And as I was going through your website, you have a team program. Tell me about that. And what impact has that had on kids Barrett's age? So how that started was, and and look, there's, there's an aspect of like, you don't, I don't think you know this, but there are people that I've been around in our sport for a long time who knew me when I was 280 pounds. Okay. High blood pressure on medication. Like, I don't know if I was pre-diabetic, but probably. So I haven't always been a very fit person. That's been when I got into CrossFit and, and actually started with Cody Wagner. Uh, at the time, Cody had come to me, we were rock crawling together and he said, Hey, I'm pre-diabetic. Like I need to lose some weight, but I don't know how to do it, but I'm competitive. So let's do a competition. And I think it was 500 bucks who lost the most weight in 30 days, but it had to be like doing it, not starving yourself, like being smart about this. And I, I didn't know about CrossFit at the time. And I went on like some website, Calorie King, and I got an elliptical and, and anyhow, and, and, and I won. It's because I like to win and <laughs> I beat Cody. <laughs> but no, you, you, you said it there, uh, you know, it wasn't just, well, maybe it was just you, but I remember when Lance Clifford, I remember when Camo, Eric Linker, I remember there was a lot of guys that were heavy. Oh yeah. It, it, myself include I'm currently heavy. Uh I'm 250, 240 something like that and I am diabetic, but it's this whole so yes, of course I'm scared about all the stuff with COVID, but not scared enough to really do anything about it. That's uh that's that's a different story. But this whole <laughs> your motivation to be fit and get fit, did your weight loss and fitness change and lifestyle change did it happen at the same time as like Lance and camo and all those guys when they all decided we're done being tubs mine was a situation where i needed i went to the hospital to get my appendix removed and i knew all the nurses and being a guy who's 6'3 i could carry my weight pretty well but i was fat it was it was terrible i was so embarrassed that all of those hot nurse friends of my wife's were going to see how fat i was and how small my penis was probably but <laughs> There's 3,000 people that's seen that already on Pirate. So (laughs) bases were covered. Yeah. Um, But you know, it's interesting. There's always a moment like that. And I had that thing with Cody, but this was more of like, I was embarrassed and I, you know, I never take my shirt off at the, uh, at the beach or anything like that. And I got done with that and I saw my son, you know, he was, I don't remember what age he was four or whatever it was. And I was like, I I need to do something because I need to be around for him. And this has gotten a little bit out of control. And I've got the most loving wife. You know, the, how much she loved me then at 280 is no different from now at, at 220. But, you know, I it was just a moment like that that made me change it. And I, it's interesting. I don't, it seemed like a lot of us were going through that. Like, like I said, with Lance and Camo. Yeah, I mean, Lance is known as Fat Bastard, right? That was, that was his thing. Um, but maybe it's just a moment where you, at that time, we're all kind of close to the same age where you're just like, uh-oh, things are getting a little bit out of control right now. Well, congratulations. And you've kept it off for a bunch of years. And you're saying 280 to 220, people are like, oh, that's still too, you know, you're still in the 200s. 
Man, that's 60 pounds. That's your, you're carrying around like an eight year old. Yeah. My 220 now, though, is uh, right about nine, eight or 9% body fat. So it's, you know, it's a different translation. Like I probably, if I just lost all the weight, I'd probably be under 200 pounds. Right. But doing CrossFit and lifting and things like that, then you, you add some of that, that muscle on there. And so we did, we got sidetracked on the, your teen program. So the reason, uh, so the reason I kind of went on that whole thing as to why I was unhealthy is to understand my passion and because I didn't have the knowledge, um, that I have now and my generation, um, and I, I'm not sure how old you are, Wyatt, but my generation, in my opinion, has really screwed things up. We went through the late eighties and nineties where we went to all this low fat stuff, right? And we added all this sugar and we created a major type two diabetes and pre-diabetic problem in our country. Look, I, I can pro if you were here, I could probably get you motivated to get in better shape. Right. But ultimately people who are my age are pretty stubborn and not wanting to make a lot of changes They're kind of set in their ways. When I look at our teens, I'm like, these are going to be the stewards of our community as we move forward. These are the people who are going to make the changes to make a healthier society. So how can I have an impact on them? And my original thought was, I'll just give the program away for free. I don't, I don't care. You know what I mean? But then when it's given away for free, then it doesn't really mean anything to anybody when it doesn't cost anything. And I had this moment with my son where we used to argue about his Xbox all the time. I just, I just hated the Xbox. It's just his go-to. And after hanging out with Casey Scherer, he wanted a one wheel because Casey had one and he asked one for his birthday. And I said, you're out of your freaking mind. Those things are like $1,200. What makes you think that your parents are going to spend $1,200 on your birthday? And I was kind of pissed that he even, you know, broached the subject so one day we're having this argument over his Xbox and I said, how badly do you want that one wheel? And he said, so badly, I want it more than anything. I said, enough to put a hammer through that effing Xbox. And he said, really? And I was like, wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> so my wife being the smart one said, why are we hitting it with a hammer? Why don't we look at selling it? And I was like, oh, that's smart. And like, I kind of wanted to video it and hit it with a hammer and then social media, the crap out of that <laughs> just to make me feel better. So what I'm leading into is it gave me, that's what gave me the thought for my, my teen program. So my teen program is a pay it forward program. They can either do something for themselves or pay it forward to the community. So they are doing something in exchange for their membership. So I have, I have teen athletes that are just putting more vegetables on their plate in exchange for that. Okay. That's pretty simple, but they may get sugar out of their diet. They may volunteer for two hours at the humane society. I have one athlete who's picking up trash on their street every Saturday morning. So it's giving them, they have skin in the game. They're in charge of their, their membership and what they're going to do in exchange for it. And if, if your daughter came to me or son and said, well, I just, I'm going to have straight A's in exchange for it, but they already have straight A's, then I don't allow that. It has to be something they're doing on, something that's creating an effort on top of what they're doing currently in exchange for the membership. So it's a, something of a mental game, right? You're making them make a mental choice to own it. Absolutely. And as a coach, what's great about it is if you, if you paid for your kid to come to my gym and you force him to come there every day, whether he wants to or not, it is not a great experience for me as a coach. But when my teens are in charge of their membership, they're essentially paying for their membership. They're coming there on their own. It is an awesome experience for me as a coach because they want to be there. Free will. Yep. Yep. Nobody's forcing them to come in there. They come in on their own. And uh, for, for, for myself and my coaching staff, it's been an absolutely amazing experience. And uh, even in my Zoom, 
classes right now, I actually have one teen and I know it's not many, but I have one teen who every five o'clock and he's one of my son's very best friends and my son's not doing the Zoom class. So it's not like to see him. He comes in there and he does this. So it is having an impact on him for sure. Wow. Wow. Making people healthier, right? More robust, more uh, less susceptible to say viruses or disease, right? For sure. Um, And then I don't think, uh, you know, just there's a business side of it too, right? Are you, am I going to spend money on advertising or am I going to let a program like this do the advertising for me? So if, if I've got your kid in my program and you are thinking about going to CrossFit, you're probably going to come to Dreamtown CrossFit. I don't need to advertise that. And when you live in a small town and you get all the hens talking at the, the bus stops about what your, you know, your gym's doing to, to help the community. And so that's our, that's our business side. That's our advertising. Yeah. The, the power of the spoken word right there. Yeah, that's, right. that goes way better than a billboard or a flyer or anything like that. Yeah. So this is going to sound like an ad somewhat, but I'm curious about it because I saw it on your, your page. Wad rod? Yep. What's a wad rod? It's a product <laughs> that you sell. Yeah. Roll me through it. it. It really looked like a baton for beating somebody's ass. With, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not. It's a piece of workout equipment that, that you've got. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty simple device. Um, so in, in CrossFit, we do a lot of times we do really high reps. So you may do 75 to hundred pull-ups. And what happens is you get a pretty bad callus on your hand. And then once that callus gets really big, it'll tear super, super deep. So pretty common in CrossFit for people to try and sand those down or they take a razor blade and cut them. And there just wasn't really a lot of great tools out there. And so I came up with that tool and the way it works is it works like a lint roller. So it's a, you know, about an 11 inch piece of hollow tube. It's knurled like a barbell on one side and then halfway up, it's got a slit in it and it has a rolled up abrasive that we worked with 3M to develop pulls out through the slit just like a lint roller does. Okay. So you can use it to sand down the calluses on your hand. And then when you're done with that piece, you just literally tear it off like a lint roller and then have a new piece. And so you're never having to buy the tool again. You only have to buy the abrasive. And if you keep those calluses, you know, at bay, then we have less tearing and you know, your wife doesn't complain when you're touching her and with those rough hands. So leather hands. So that's a W O D R O D.com. Yep. Yep. Thanks. <laughs> how, how much, how much is one of those things? $35. $35. Is that shipped? Uh, no. Oh, you can plus s- shipping. I can send you one. <laughs> no, I, I, hey, I'm okay. I'm, 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 I'm quite all right. But like I said, I was intrigued when I was uh, going through, you know, I want to know as much about you as, you know, be as personal as possible. I'm like, yeah. wow, look at not only entrepreneur, he's also got products out there. And it is initially I was like, totally out and right field. Then I started looking at it. I was like, ah, I think that it's, it looks like it workout equipment. No, it's a, uh, it's some personal care equipment to go so with your it's workout. A very, it's a very CrossFit name. Wad is workout of the day. So wad rod is the name we came up with. We're still going through the patent process. We got denied for the first part of it. It's been a cool thing. Look, I, it's never going to probably make me a ton of money or anything like that. But you know, when I, I ship one anywhere in the country, every time I ship one, I'm like, really? They want one of these? <laughs> you know what I mean, like, it's a really cool feeling when you invent something that's never existed in the year 2020. That's, it's kind of a rad thing. And somebody wants it right? It's yeah. a little bit of success goes a long ways. You know, we have a hundred percent money back guarantee. Anybody doesn't want it. I'd send them back their money. They send it back. I've never sent one back. I've never had to do it. So of course it's a cheap 
item. You know, it's not like they're spending a hundred dollars, but fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. Yep. Well, let's move into off-road. Let's do it. Cause well, you're well known. We've, I, we've got you, you background covered the mental game covered the mind over body covered, but based on where you grew up, the Tahoe area, you got the Rubicon right there. No, you're, you know, spent how many weekends and days of your life on the Rubicon by the time you're 50. So you probably got something like 700,000 days up on the Rubicon. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've been a Bronco guy. And so I think, you know, you've rolled through a ton of different Broncos over the years, though. I did find somewhere that you had an FJ at one point. Yep. yep. I think it was only one though. Uh, only one. <laughs> and then, I mean, even, even further, you got to race the, the Baja thousand this past year with Ford performance when they rolled out the Bronco. So that's kind of a surreal event to be a part of and be a part of history there. Uh, it's so surreal because my Broncos in 1969 and our number was 2069. Like I, every aspect of what happened there was so, so surreal. Like I just couldn't not go. Like we were in the Bronco. We got to do the Baja 1000. It was one of the coolest things ever. And, you know, I haven't really talked about Jason that much in this, but that guy has always, 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 it has my back and includes me on everything. They did not, they meaning basically like Cameron Steele and Kurt Leduc and those guys, who the hell is Jason Berger? Like, I was going to know who I am. You know, Johnny Campbell, they wanted Ricky Brayback in, in the car with Jason was one of the things that was tossed around because he's, he's known as this, you know, amazing dirt bike rider. And he's got a lot more followers than I do. What do I got? 105 on my Instagram? <laughs> At CrossFit Sally. It's a great, it's a great name, by the way. I can remember it. Yeah. Yes. So my old coach used to call me a Sally all the time and he was much younger than me. And I just, he didn't realize I didn't, I didn't really care that he called me a Sally. So I just like, I'm CrossFit Sally. (laughs) But, um, so Jason was like, look, I, I need my co-driver. I want my co-driver next to me. And, uh, so that's how I was involved with that. And, uh, I, there's nothing that I did to get there. That was all Jason share that made sure that I was part of that program. That was pretty cool. I mean, the names involved, uh, it was pretty cool Ford to come out and get into off-road on that level. Plus we saw him this year at King of the Hammers with the Ford Arch, you know, it's very cool to see Ford is not an outside the industry sponsor. They're in motorsports, but it's very cool to see them getting behind off-road motorsports. I'm so excited. I mean, I, uh, other than, than the level brothers, like when we run an XRA, I was running a Ford motor also a 347. And so I've always been that Ford guy, you know? So yeah, just absolutely amazing experience. And I'll tell you why, like the, when we went down there pre-running Cameron wanted all of us, Cameron Steele wanted all of us to go do pre-running and like get in different vehicles. So we really become a team and we're sitting around the first night at the dinner table and we're supposed to introduce ourselves. And you know, it's Johnny Campbell and it's Kurt LeDuc and it's Shelby Hall and it's Brad Lovell. It's Bobby Pecoy. It's Jason Scherer. And then it comes to me and I'm like, some Jason Berger. Um, there's absolutely no reason you would ever know why I'm here. Who I am. I mean, I was just looking around the table going, Oh my God, look at the people that I'm surrounded by and what I get to be a part of because one of my very best friends pushed so hard for me to be there. And, uh, even though it didn't go as was planned, right. We didn't finish. Right. Yeah. Um, it was the coolest thing ever. Like even just like my backpack that says Ford on it. And I may or may not have tagged 
the Pelican case with a Ford Bronco sticker when it comes back to you. <laughs> that, that's amazing. I, I love that those Pelican cases have been starting to get tagged. I think, you know, the tribe yeah. guys started, uh, Josh Blyler started. I mean, it was, it, it, I think people thought I don't want to desecrate it or whatever. And I'm like, man, make that thing look like the back wall of a Seven Eleven in Compton. Yeah, no, it was great. I saw that on one of your posts or something like that. I was like, oh, I can totally do that. Bring it. Look, I, I've, I've said this and I, I truly mean this. I'm not throwing myself into the bus. I, I'm, I am not, I mean, I'm a good man. I'm a good husband. I am not, I don't have the skills and uh, like the manly skills of like JT Taylor or Tom ways. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very nervous. Um, stepping out of my comfort zone. Like I grew up in Tahoe. I, I like it here in Tahoe. I feel very safe. So for me to go down to Baja, like all these things kind of had to be in place for it to make sense to me. And our second night, I don't know, Jason sure told you that, but we had 30 guns pulled on us. We were pulled over by the federales. They blocked us, pulled me out and Jason by gunpoint, six of them on my side, scarfed up, guns pointed at us. Like it was, I was like, oh God, here's what my wife's been worried about the entire time. And all I'm thinking when I'm getting out of the car is my wife says, I, I'm a lot bigger than I realized. Make myself small, make myself small. <laughs> so, and obviously everything went fine. They were looking for some people running some guns and drugs. They actually treated us totally fairly. Um, but it was one of the scariest moments in my entire life. Uh, we, we have, we've heard the stories and we've heard, heard the scare stories and we've seen yep. the TV shows, you know, like Narcos, we've seen these things and for those of us that don't go race in Mexico and Baja, south of the border, on a regular basis, we're not, you know, we're, we've bought into, ooh, how scary it can be. But, you know, certainly there's some outliers like that. But by and large, it seems to be business as usual for the race community south of the border. You know, I, I was terrified when they pulled us out, but ultimately when we looked back on it, um, they said they were looking for people in our description that were running guns and drugs, and they searched everything. And. I wasn't roughed up. Nothing was taken. We actually were treated very professionally as far as I was concerned. They even let me get my passport and phone out of the glove box, which I wasn't going to reach for as the guns were pointed at me for obvious reasons. No, you know, and it was, it was absolutely, I obviously wish we could have put that, that car across that finish line for Ford. Um, they put a, a tremendous amount of effort into that program. I'm really bummed that we weren't able to do that, but the experience, um, I mean, it's absolute bucket list for me. I, I think it'd be bucket list for anybody, especially based on that list. And I know some of those guys, I've spoken with some of those guys on that list. I wouldn't, you know, I, I not far as to say they're friends. I've just have met and talked to some of them. They're just there's a reason why a bunch of those names are in the off-road hall of fame. There's a, or they're contenders for it. They're just quintessential competitors and you can't help, but want to measure yourself up to them and ride some coattails there. I mean, I think it's awesome. I think it's so yeah, awesome. I mean, look, we've all seen dust to glory and I'm, I'm pre-running one day with Johnny Campbell for eight hours in the truck. And I, I can't tell you how many times I went, is this really happening? Like, am I pinch yourself? Which, come on. This is amazing. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I mean, I know we're kind of leading into some of that stuff. I, I don't know why, like I, um, I don't so much believe in luck, but I've been one of the most fortunate people in the world to be aligned with some very top teams that have given me an incredible opportunity to live out my lifelong dreams. I love your dreams. You have good ones. So when you first got into kind of rocks, which you'd been around the Rubicon for years and years and years, you're already wheeling. You got invited to or asked to spot for somebody back in the early 2000s at, 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 an, at an event. Maybe it was a U-Rock event. And then 
that's kind of out of that was born your motorsports, you know, uh, uh, mountain goat motorsports. Yeah. So we, um, I went down to watch, uh, I saw the Lake Amador. Is that, I don't remember where it was where uh, Chris Durham. I mean, if you guys remember back then, like I, it was just insane. That guy was, uh, just full throttle beating the crap out of his stuff. And I was hooked. Next trip was down to Cougar Buttes and uh, a good friend of mine who actually volunteered for me. I think every single year for 20 years on my disabled sports program. His name is Phil Paziak. Love Phil Paziak. Just one of the, the nicest people we ever meet. His spotter got hurt and uh, he asked me to step in. And so I spotted him and he's like, wow, we got seventh. We've never placed that high before. You want to keep doing this? And then um, I want to say like the sequence of events, I want to say we were in like Fernley for like some man-made course out there. And that's where I got to know Jason a little bit better. I think that's kind of like our first time kind of meeting up and, and uh, uh, my brother-in-law had, had, I kind of worked on his car a little bit that he got back from Schaefer's. And then I ran that year spotting for him. And then, yeah, I got my own rig. Um, I bought a factory tubular motorsports with um, Mog 9s underneath it, uh, just a two-seater. And I ran the UROC series. Um, my very first spotter was Tom Ways. And then uh, ended up going, uh, my brother-in-law ended up spotting for me. And did, did Tom have a mustache back then? Or was that a Sans mustache era for him? Uh, yeah, Tom's had it on and off. <laughs> like, I'm not just sure. <laughs> But he was, he was a, he was a great spotter. Um, we, I mean, we, I think we broke on every single course our first time. He was probably a little too intense and I was a little too throttle happy, but yeah, I went, we did the U-Rock and, um, I actually ended up buying a buggy off of Rusty Bray. I don't know if you remember Rusty Bray. Oh, very well. Mr. Kentucky. Yep. I bought his single seat moon buggy. I think Jesse Haynes built that car. At Badlands, if I'm correct, I, I don't remember exactly, but so I was running that. I only ran that at SEMA that year when we were down at Vegas uh, for, uh, you know, the championships for Supercrawl. And then I got into XRA. And to me, that was just super, super fun. And uh, I, I ran some nitrous just for the fun of it. And, and I put a sticker across the nitrous bottle that said, crawling is for babies. It was kind of my throw at, uh, as much as I still loved rock crawling, I just was got, you know, throwing that there. And I had my moment, like my very first moment, and I don't think I told you about this, we were doing a Donner event and there was some downtime. I don't remember what was going on between like the finals or whatever. And Dustin Webster was the announcer and I was doing recovery and there's this big rock slab there and that they would, you know, drive up and go around this cone. And Dustin was looking for like an intermission show. And so I decided, I said, I can climb that thing in two wheel drive. And I hit the bottom of that thing on nitrous and it pulled the front tires off the ground. And I literally hopped. I mean, you can see the air come off the rear tires with the front tires never touching and hopped all the way to the top. Complete luck. Like I had, there's no talent there whatsoever. I wish I could say totally planned, stopped at the top, heart was pounding, thought I was almost going to die. Crowd was going nuts. I go back down to the parking lot and I didn't know Shannon Campbell very well. I just knew that he was my hero, right? Like everybody's here on the sport. And he goes, I want a picture of that signed to put up in my shop. And I turned to my wife and I said, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I, that's, it's never going to get any better than that. Right. <laughs> um, obviously I never sent him a picture that, that signed there, but that was like a really big moment for me. And I, I got to know the Campbell family a lot better. And that's, um, after that moment, um, that, that kind of moved on in terms of becoming, you know, part of their family. And I mean, at that point, you know, like Bailey and Waylon, they were just babies. Time. Yeah. Yes. So you've totally seen them grow up. Like I remember even just 2009 King of the Hammers being out there and I don't know, 
Bailey and Waylon being 10 or so and racing and then to see where they are today in 2020, you know, this, you know, these hard ass competitors, it's amazing. It's awesome. Like it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I absolutely love it. I wanted Bailey to win so badly this year after we were broke. Not, not before. Right, right. right. And she passed us. I'm like, yes, come on, make this happen, Bailey. Come on. And unfortunately it didn't go her way, but, um, look, that girl's got a tremendous amount of talent and, um, you know, it, it's interesting to see how they drive compared to how their, their, their dad drives, like, and what, um, I, you know, obviously Bailey's a little bit more like her dad, I would say. Um, Waylon, I think is a little bit more of that cautious driver. And, and of course I got to, to ride with Waylon and see a little bit of that too. He's more of a calculated driver, which has made him a very consistent finisher. Right. I actually called and text Bailey this week about something that I needed to talk to her about and, uh, that I had some questions on and some of it was around you and she never called me back. Hmm. <laughs> so I hope she listens to this and hears me call her out for <laughs> Bailey. Now, and, yeah, and of course, funny. her voicemail's full. And then, if yeah. you've ever called Bailey, her voicemail is a—it's an answer. You like it rings all the way until it answers, and then it's like, "Hey, sorry, it took me so long to get to the phone." And you're like, "Okay, no, it's cool." Beep, and you're like, "Oh, oh she yeah. totally, totally <laughs> suckered me." I'm like, oh, yeah, "I yeah. hate." Anyway, yeah. So I, that was kind of like my moment with that. And then we did the XRA season. We did well, you know, all these things presented opportunities. Like my XRA season, I, I had a blast. It's when I really got to know, you know, Brad and Roger better. And it's when I became such good friends with JT, like that is where our friendship started. Um, so that to me was my number one takeaway from XRA, even though I don't talk to JT all the time. He's one of those guys. When I see him, we can pick up right where we left off, give each other, each other some shit, give each other a hug. And then after XRA, you know, it was kind of like, it, it was just too short for how far I was traveling. I was traveling all the way to Colorado Springs. And if we were kicking ass, we raced for seven minutes, right? Like minute and a half courses. And I was like, man, I can't, this is, this is ridiculous. And so, um, after that, I, I, I had sold all my stuff and kind of, kind of stopped doing my own thing. And right then was, you know, the weavers started to wind it down that, 07, 08, and then by 09, it was pretty well wound down. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but, with extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, 
duals and triples. They've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website, so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website, magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you are a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT. 10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. Were you at King of the Hammers in 08? I was not. And so the first your first year racing King of the Hammers you're co-driving for Jason Shearer. It's 2009. You're in a Campbell car. You put it on the box. Yep. Podium that thing. Tell me about 2009 King of the Hammers. Dig back in your memory. How cool is that? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't have to dig back that far like that. That I will never forget that. I mean, who's ever going to forget the first time they win King of the Hammers. And even at that time, I know it wasn't the size it is now, but it was a really big freaking deal to win that. I think Jason and I spent more time that year than any other year that we've spent. And we spent a lot of time. And, and and Jason may not have that same story because I'm not right next to him working on the car like he is all the time. I'm, I'm up here doing my own thing. But why we practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And we were out at Moon Rocks practicing. We were out someplace out by, I don't know, out by somewhere in Nevada practicing. We were down at the Hammers practicing just trying to make that car faster and faster and faster. And we were, we felt pretty confident that nobody was faster than us. We knew people were as fast as us. Um, but we felt pretty confident going into that race. If we could keep the car together, we would put up a good finish. We never thought that we'd, I think that really thought that we'd win, but yeah, it was amazing. Um, we passed, I think that year, like, you know, there was no qualifying and I, I want to say we started like 30th or 27th. And within 25 miles, we had passed every single car and were physically in first. And I remember coming back into Hammertown and Jason saying, well, even if we break down in a mile, we just made history passing all those cars in 20 miles. And then, uh, you know, the, the rest is history. We were able to get up on the, on the box there. Yeah, that's uh, good stuff. And then in 2010, you had work getting away. You didn't come back to the Hammers in 10. So I did in 2010. Yeah, it was 2011. I did it in 2010. I came back. Jason and I broke an upper Y link, um, all the way over on upper Johnson. And I hiked across the top of the mountains, um, all the way over to the the pit over by wrecking ball at the time was where there was a pit. Um, and we had a spare one and then hiked it back and Jason had the car ready to go back together. And then, uh, I can't remember where we finished in that race, but it was in 2011 when my, I owned a transportation business at the time and I had basically got the, the Starbucks contract. So you can imagine I was a little bit busy with Starbucks opening every other corner. And so it was hard for me to leave during the winter because we, we get so much snow up here. And so I took, a, I took a little bit of a break for a couple of years, except for one local race. I had raced with JT here locally. And that was 2011 stampede. That right? Yeah. And there's a great, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 2011. I hate to tell this story just because I sound like such a dick, but you know, JT qualified first and Jason was riding Adam Shearer, built him that car, that white car they had, the two seater. 
and Jason had qualified second behind us and we were in the TTB car. And look, my fire suit was bought by Jason. Okay. It says rage forth BFG, everything's across it. Right. So when we get there in the morning, I take, God, I'm such a dick. I take white tape and I put it over rage forth and I put it over BFG because we're good year and I'm not part of rage forth that day. And I told JT, I said, I'm going to walk back to Jason right now and just say good morning. And I walk back there and I, I'm, I feel so bad, but he looks at me and he's like, but Chase, and he points at my, my fire suit with the rage fourth covered up. He's like, but Chase, we're still like, you're still. And I'm like, Chase, not today. Not today. I'm, I'm not rage fourth today. I'm actually here to beat you. Sorry about that, buddy. And I turn around, I walked away and I go back to JT and I go, got him. <laughs> he's going to be such a mess right now. <laughs> like we told, I got in his head. We're good. I know I sound like such a dick, but that is the one thing about when you go from team to team to team of, you know, I've the, the year that Shannon ripped his whole front tire off passing his son when he didn't have to pass his son. That's right. He passed us at the bottom of uh, full of hate. And Jason goes, what do I do? I go, let him go. He'll take himself out. I, I'm co-drive with him all the time. He won't make it to the finish line. He's got tire ball sticking out of the right front tire right now. <laughs> And then Shannon asked me, why did you let me pass you? That was the stupidest thing I've ever seen you do. And I'm like, I told Jason, you take yourself out. And you almost did, you dumbass. You didn't even have to pass your son. I'm not going to let that little fucker beat me to the finish line. Exactly. <laughs> that's the reason everybody loves Shannon. And, you know, I, uh, so that's like, you talk about the psychological side. Unfortunately, like when I've been on some different teams like that, I, you know, I don't mean to use it against them, but look, JT brought me on to win that race. And, uh, maybe people think it's a dick move, but it was just like, it was our way of like, Hey, I'm, I'm here for JT today and I want him to win. I'm going to do everything to make sure that we do. And y'all won with that car. We did. We, we, uh, we won. Yeah, we almost didn't. Um, we, I, I missed a call, uh, coming back into, uh, into one of our pits one time. I was just so excited because we had like a 20 mile lead on Jason and, and I forgot to call a turn and we, we completely went off down by the cows. There's some fencing. <laughs> I mean, like why? Like missed the corner and like jumped off the side of the road down, like in a pasture type of missing the corner. <laughs> yeah. That's a problem. But, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't, is that JT's only win? Actually don't, I don't know. He doesn't race that much. Well, I mean, as an employee of Ultra 4 now, I, he, he can't. But, yes, I do believe that's his only win. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. <laughs> but I have heard I have heard some discussion, probably get in trouble for you. I've heard some discussion about so some, I'm gonna fifth on this. <laughs> some OG 13 stuff going uh, yeah. on. And I, <laughs> I have no I, idea what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was asking when this was going to air because I was like, huh, if it's airing on Monday, I'm probably going to keep my freaking mouth shut. <laughs> if it's airing later, now we might be able to talk. <laughs> I don't know when it's going on. All I know is I was told, hey, you need to come to California. And I was like, in February. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, look, I, everybody's, um, I'm just going to say everybody's a little bit antsy right now. You know, we all want to race and do stuff yeah. and, so who knows whether it's going to happen or not going to happen. But um, I just think it's a lot of people getting antsy and the race cars are sitting there and races have been canceled and maybe something does or doesn't happen. But it's not actually, from what I've heard, it's not actually like a true race. It's more like just, hey, let's get some buddies together in the desert and let's just go do some. That's right. Still bragging rights. Yeah. I mean, look, is it more important to win $100,000 or is it more important to win a dick swinging contest? I say dick swinging contest every time. Every time. 
fully every time. No one remembers the other one. Yeah. You're going to get rid of the hundred thousand. So, yeah. So I rode with JT that year and then, um, you know, I had, I had done, um, with the Campbells I had in the 2007, eight, whatever I had spotted for Nick Campbell when Shannon was getting more into the high speed stuff. And, uh, and we did great. Like I, uh, you know, national pro modified champion the same year that Jason and I won KOH. And that was, that was a pretty cool accomplishment too, to have both those things happen. So that's like, Nick always like flew me all over the place. And we, we just had an absolute blast doing our rock calling stuff. And then, um, Shannon asked me if I would ride with Wayland. And I think that was 2014 or 2015. I don't remember exactly the year that was, but he, at that time, I think that was his best finish at that time. I think we got fourth i want to say a fifth somewhere around there fourth or fifth something like that legit people would beg borrow and steal just to get a finish and to finish top 10 is outstanding yep and then how, how did you guys broach the uh the utvs starting i mean i know how campbell's got into racing utvs it makes a, it makes a lot of sense as much as shannon hates them and <laughs> and and certainly you can vouch that it absolutely hates them as soon as the last one comes in off of the course, they are being loaded as they come back to the Campbell compound. They are being loaded on the trailer to go back to Phoenix because he's kicking them out like immediately. <laughs> they don't even get a chance, no matter how broke they are. They're not getting repaired. They're not getting touched. They're literally grab the jack, grab the impacts out of them, put them on the trailer. That's it. I'm done. Yeah. I mean, you know, Shannon, like that's kind of, I, he loves them. Are you kidding me? He's he on does. those things every weekend. Um, it's just, look, I mean, and, and I'm sure you walked into their pit and anybody else has like, it is, it is freaking nuts in the Campbell pit. I mean, they've got, you know, three cars. Now they got Brian's car too. We got four cars there. Um, trying to manage one car is difficult enough and you've got tools going out to all these different cars. And then you've got, I don't know, they've got six or seven UTVs there. You know, it's just a little bit insane. So I think that's part of, I, I don't know, but just, I think that's just part of like, let's get rid of some of the chaos. Let's just get these things. Off. That's right. Yeah. And get them going. Um, and I don't remember exactly how that, that started. I mean, Shannon and I've been friends for a really long time. Anytime he's coming through, he's, he's stayed here before. And, um, he actually used to do CrossFit a little bit too. And then I don't remember when he asked me, but, uh, he asked me if I would co-drive for him. And, and I said, yeah, I need to check him, check in with Jason. Like, cause you know, like Jason has completely changed the car for me and got me in there. And, uh, and we just decided that it was a great opportunity. Jason didn't care that I was with Shannon and he looked at it as a positive thing. It's, it's another time where I get my eyes on the course. Right. You no, know, exactly. And I know that's why kind of, you know, Campbell's got into it, you know, for sponsors and the cars, but also there's a reason why Lauren Healy is also in UTV. There's a reason why Miller is running UTV. It's you get that extra chance to see course. Absolutely. And in terms of sponsorship, look, those things, people want to have those. My son wants one. I mean, everybody wants one of those things. So in terms of sponsorship and actually being able to represent a company that actually might receive sales from what you're doing there is huge, right? Not that many people are going to buy a Campbell car, like maybe one or two a year if, if Shannon's lucky that he's going to build, right? Um, or Randy Slauson. So there's a huge opportunity for sponsorship there. And uh, it gives you an extra eye on the on the course. And and you know what? It's, it's pretty fun. It really is. And now you can fit 35. There's a 35-inch competition tire for them. That's starting to, we're starting to get up there. I mean, they're yeah, starting no. to get. <laughs> Look, here's the deal. Honestly, out of the box, even the little Razor S's back in 2009 were going faster through the whoops than Jason and I were in his car. 
Yeah. I mean, they just, they just work, you know, you just don't want to roll one at 80 miles an hour. That's the only thing that terrifies me is, uh, and I trust the camels are good fabricators, you know, and actually I know everybody thinks Shannon's nuts, but he really isn't with me in the car. Um, he actually listens really, really well. And, and my safety is definitely one of his concerns. Uh, Shannon is as good as it gets on all levels. He's a good guy. He really is. Yep. Yep. Always treated me really well for sure. Jason's current car that Jason won with two times back to back, you know, he, he was going for, you know, an, a fourth win, which would, would have been a third win this year. Been amazing to do three back to back. When he originally built that car, roughly, I'm going to say that's 2015. I could be off on my years a little bit one way or the other. It was originally a single seater. Mm-hmm. And then you guys had a conversation about racing together again. How did that go down? So when Jason first built the car, he said that he was making it, configured it so that it could become a two-seater for everyone to come back and race with him. He's like, look, it doesn't, it's a single-seater now, but I think for KOH, a two-seater would be best. Um, but, you know, I don't know for whatever reason, he, he wanted me back in the car, you know, but he wasn't going to change it unless I was doing it. And, you know, we kind of talk about things like that, but it, it's kind of like this interview. I don't know how serious Jason was. I don't know how serious you were about this. So I was like, ah, oh, whatever. And then... You know, I started being like, yeah, I'd like to get back into it. And, and, you know, I've been doing stuff with the Campbells and it was awesome. Like we didn't have any problems there or anything like that, but those guys were all on single seaters. Bailey had her co-driver. Waylon had gone to a single seater and my son came to me and he said, daddy, you know, I know Jason, you know, I know Shannon's one of your, one of your great friends and, and, and I love Shannon. I know you love Shannon, but you and Jason are like best friends. Like you guys belong in the car together. You really need to get back racing with Jason. This is coming from a 13 year old. So I, was pretty rad. I called Jason and I said, how serious were you about putting me in the car? And he goes, I'm just waiting for this phone call. And I go, really? And he goes, I will order the parts tomorrow. And I said, let's do this. And he literally ordered the parts the next day and sent the car to trout. I mean, that's how fast that happened. I'm not over-exaggerating. Like Jason was waiting for that moment. It's what he wanted to do. Whether a two-seater is what it takes to win KOH or not, just having somebody to experience KOH with was more important to Jason than actually when he goes, I just want somebody in the car with me that I trust and that I can enjoy this experience with. And when you realize how competitive minded Jason is when he puts his helmet on or even leading up to putting a helmet on that's saying those are powerful, powerful words for him to say. He just wanted to share that with you that that was more important. Yeah, I'm actually kind of even shocked at that because being around him, he's very intense about the win. Yeah. Look, or yeah. <laughs> yeah, it made me cry a little bit. I told you I'm soft. <laughs> no, but it really did. I was like, wow. And uh, you know, the only probably time you're ever gonna see me a really, really angry side of me ever come out is obviously somebody said something about my wife or somebody said something negative about Jason, because I've just never met anybody in my life who always, always involves everybody and thinks about everybody else. And and Jason's always done that with me. And, you know, look, he's nervous having a passenger, anybody who's in a two seater. And I haven't talked to, to Eric or Josh or any of those people, but I know probably one of their main concerns when they go into race day is, are they going to hurt their co-driver? It's an underlying tone. Yep. And I've broached that with, you know, with, with friends and conversations. And I, I don't know how well you, you know, miles, but you know, miles, is a good friend of mine and it wasn't until he rode with me at the mint one year and i was like wow um yeah i could have killed you man (laughs) like like i could have killed both of us that's how Mm -hmm. how we just didn't have a good day and that's something else your prep to get into the right seat though walk us through the steps of what you know what 
homework do you put down? How do you make it to where, well, I mean, as JT says, you're the winningest co-driver in history. It's not, you've certainly aligned yourself and are friends with some guys that are some very fierce competitors that are, you know, it's on any given day, they can put themselves on the podium, but you're, you know, I'm patting you on the back, you know, virtually here. There's something about what you're doing in the right seat that is lending confidence to the program and leaning confidence to the effort to be able to drive that extra two, three, or 10% to outpace the competitors. What are you going through on that standpoint? And then once you're in the car, what's the mental game? Oh, those are, those are all great questions. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah, no, it is. Um, I'm trying to like kind of decipher that. So I can say like for me, and I think Jason would attest to this too. Like I'm, I'm not very good when it's not intense. Okay. Like when we go out and we pre-run, I'm I'm like screwing up on the GPS left and right. Like I just like not in the game. And and when I, as a pitcher in college and in in high school, I was a way better relief pitcher than I was a starter. Like put me in when it's intense and I'll, I'll do the right thing. I'll make it happen. So like in terms of our our prep. I think everybody does the same thing, right? You're going out there, you're making the notes. Um, I think something that Jason and I do a little bit differently, and I don't know there could be an argument whether it's good or bad is we run the race car. I mean, everybody knows that now. Um, what's phenomenal about it is we're getting done with our pre-running a lot quicker. And what also is interesting, at least for Jason and I is the faster we are able to pre-run the better both of our memory is. If we run it at 30 miles an hour, I don't remember turns, bumps, I don't remember anything. But if we run it at 80, let's say 80% of what we're planning on running, I won't forget a single bump or single rock or anything along that that trail, whether it's marked on the GPS or not. Um, And I don't know if that works for everybody. Um, It's obviously you're rolling the dice, like look at what happened this year. Transmission went out, right? We didn't change the transmission before the race because everything seemed fine. Well relatively seemed fine. Jason actually did make some comments that it seemed a little bit soft before the race. And, uh, I'll be honest with you. I kind of ignored that because some of my job is to kind of play through, like, is this being over-exaggerated or is this not like, is this a real thing or are we just dealing with stress? And I may have misjudged that because a car felt fine to me and all of our data that we had coming back was good. The argument could be made. You're a dumbass because you ran your race car out there pre-running and it made it through the pre-running. If you wouldn't have done that, you would have made it through the race. Who knows? Um, but we, we've chosen that to be part of our success. Well, yeah, running at race pace, you know, it's like watching a, it's, here's a great example. I actually saw it today and I'm running through my head. It is, uh, I, th- I believe it's Parker 425 qualifying this year. Harley Lettner in the Concrete Motorsports Trophy truck comes over a rise truck one or two trucks before him had came over the same rise and landed a little bit funky and wrecked and rolled so he comes over it throws him out of the course to the right to his right and there's a camera guy over there oh, and, uh, I saw that. yeah oh it's crazy and <laughs> you see the camera guy dive i think harley collects the tripod that the camera was attached to i think he collected it but <laughs> i've seen that at race pace it doesn't look it doesn't look too bad i mean had the guy not been there it would have been just you know whatever i think that's scary thing that because there was a guy there and he dives out of the way it adds some drama to it but then i watched it today in the video that i saw come across my instagram it was in slow motion well it looks so much more dramatic but you don't remember any like it's it's that whole as you speed up and slow down the video the human brain picks up what's important and what's not important like a rock out there in the middle of one of the you know 
one of the trails, it's an inconsequential rock at 30 miles an hour. You don't care. It's, it's below your noise threshold. Yep. But when you're coming through there at 80, all of a sudden, as you come out of that kicker, it throws you right at that rock at 80 that it didn't happen at 30. So it wasn't, it, it was below the, I'm going to just call it noise threshold. It just didn't register. It wasn't to, you guys weren't running out of pace that something like that would register. And that would have normally been a race ender things like that. Yeah. You know, unless Jason builds a duplicate of the race car of exactly the race car, which would be rad. Uh, it's been talked about just has never happened. I mean, obviously money wise, that would be insane, but, um, that's your only other option really, because that you want to know your track with exactly what it is, the clearance that you have, all those things are really important. And actually, you know, Shannon's done that for years and Shannon's attitude is always like, Hey, if my junk can't make it 500 miles, then it shouldn't be doing 250. You know, his, his thought is it should be able to go 500 miles, double what the course is. And he's wadded it up doing that too. <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> was that 20, yeah. 2018? I think they were just coming back from a photo shoot and yard sailed the car. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it can be at any moment. It could be an ender always. You know, I, I, I think if you like, I've, I've tried to kind of even figure it out. Why, why do I get an opportunity to do this? Like what has made me any different than anybody else who's reading that GPS? Cause anybody can read a GPS and call a right and a left. And I think I'm just, I'm calm during most of this. Like I never, I'm never screaming and yelling at Jason. Like I've heard radio transmission with people and they're like, ah, just like screaming at each other. And it's just super, super intense. And you cannot keep that going for seven hours. It's just not possible. So it's just about trying to stay calm. My job is to keep the car calm and make the best decisions with the information that we have available. Lap two years ago, when we went back to back, we won our second year in row. We came in from the second lap. I said to Jason, we've done everything we were supposed to do perfectly. We came back in here physically first. The car's in good shape. Now, when we go out on our third lap, because we're going to have lap traffic, now we make decisions based off of the information that we're given at that time. We don't ever second guess it. We just make that decision based off of what we see. Hopefully it's the right decision as we move forward. And now Jason's left you on course before, right? Mm, no, he left his brother. It was Casey. Yep. And that was the top of back door. I think so. That yeah. was the first year I didn't ride with him. <laughs> In my head, I, as you were talking through that, I'm like, wait a second. I think Jason has left somebody. It was not you. It was Casey. That's other than that, you know, trying to keep him calm, letting him know what I'm comfortable with, reminding him to drink. These all seem like simple things, but reminding him, Hey, Jason, you need to take a drink of water. Hey, Jason, you need to eat something. And you know, to bring back to CrossFit again. But when you do a workout, when you have five rounds of such and such, and it's going to be 30 minutes long, I talk to my athletes, Hey, how do you think you're going to feel at 25 minutes? Let's start the workout there. Let's start out with that rep scheme. And Jason and I look at the race very similarly. We're not going to be done in three hours. It isn't a sprint. We're going to be in the car for a really, really long time. And when you're in the rocks, it kind of gets boring and sucks a little bit and it's hot. And I, we try and figure out where we're going to be at that six hour mark and make sure that when we hit that six hour mark, that we are still making the absolute best decisions we can make. Okay. Um, we don't want to make a terrible decision, like almost put Josh out this year. Right. That's when you're like, 
oh man, I was just like, couldn't believe that just happened. And thank God I'm, I'm stoked for Josh that I'm stoked that there was somebody new who got on the podium this year. Right. That's super rad. And we're talking about the role at the top of back door on his way to the finish line. And, And he said, I just, my brain just stopped working. Yep. He was done. Yep. And that's the mental game where, you know, guys that make it to that point in the race and certainly there's a lot weighing on them, right? I'm the rabbit, right? How close behind me is the fox, you know, or the hound on top of trying to run your race and be whatever. Yeah. At the end of that day, dehydration, lack of eating something for six hours or eight hours, you know, it all plays mental havoc. And that's, that's, I think what a lot of people sometimes miss in when they look at that race, like, oh, you're in the car for that long. How? And people ask me that all the time. Like, how could you get in a car for six hours or eight hours? What do you do to go to the bathroom? And then you have the, the catheter conversation. How does that work? <laughs> it, wait, it, you roll it on and it's glue? Yes. That sounds terrible. By the way, that was a that, <laughs> that was another little business I had. I never forgot to tell you about. It's called racecatheter.com. We had actually made a medical grade catheter that goes to a piece of vinyl tubing instead of having that adapter in there because I didn't like the catheters that were on the market and the insurance was so expensive that I I quit doing it, but they're the same ones that I use nowadays. But your your example's great. Like I tell people like, "Hey, hop in your car right now and drive as fast as you can all the way to San Diego." You know, from Tahoe that's like what it's doing there. And you're just on pavement, not getting beat up the entire time. So to me, I truly believe that being in the best physical shape that you possibly can is a huge thing to being at your best when you finish that race, not making stupid decisions. Um, I don't want this to sound any sort of arrogance at all, but when we've, the years that Jason and I have won, we've been in the car for seven hours and we get to the finish line, we're not destroyed. The car may not go much further, but Jason and I feel good. Like we're not completely trash. Like we're, we're, we're doing fine. Well, I know we see that of like, like Eric Miller, hardcore workout guy now, like didn't used to be from what I can tell, but yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's a huge part of it. Like you're, you're, my body is fine. I, I can take those hits fine. And when previously I probably couldn't have. So I think that's a big part of it. I think people forget, you know, I don't know when Shannon's by himself, for example, like if he remembers to drink and eat or whether he has somebody on the radio to tell him to do that. But that's a very simple thing I do with Jason. Like, Hey, you take a drink of water. Jason been a half an hour, you know, let's have this. Um, we got to make sure that our mental game is still spot on. Um, look, and, and in terms of when I look at it from my perspective, the, the year we went back to back, that helicopter footage, we we're doing 125 miles an hour through those whoops. I want Jason at his absolute best. My wife and kid are waiting at the finish line. I don't want him making a mistake. <laughs> so what you're saying is you guys are like 100% business all seven hours. There's no funny stories or laughs or anecdotes or movie quotes. Oh no, no, no. that's not true. Oh, there's funny stories. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, gotta, and that's actually what keeps you calm is what I'm saying is we're like, Jason and I are talking about anything and everything. And sometimes it's like, Oh God, we kind of need to get back to racing. Right. There is uh unfortunately like one of the coolest moments this year, there was a, on the backside of, uh, you're talking about like cool stories. After we came out of Cougar Buttes, there was a section where there was some, like it was probably seven more miles after Cougar Buttes, there were some big G outs and they were marked hazards. And I had mentioned we were pre-running. I was like, I, I bet you we could clear those. Like that would be pretty sick, like to jump those. Well, we had the helicopter down on us 
And we we're coming up on him and Jason and I start talking about it. And he's like, dude, we're, we're going to go for it. And we cleared those. And I told him, I said, even if we don't finish this race, which unfortunately happened, I said, that was the most fun we've ever had with fucking trophy truck. And how badass was that? <laughs> so we're having those moments consistently, right? Like we're always laughing and, and having a good time. That's really ultimately for Jason and I, and for a lot of people there, not everybody's like Lauren Healy, where it's become his, you know, his job that he does. I got to, I'm gonna, no matter what happens, I'm going back to, to coaching CrossFit on Monday and Jason's going back to his business on Monday. So we, I mean, it doesn't mean we don't want to win, um, but we need to make sure we can still go back to our normal job. Nothing there is going to be life changing for us unless we screw up terribly. That's a good mindset to be in. Yep. It is. By saying that, it's not a knock on like Lauren's mindset at all or, or any, or, or Eric Miller's mindset who are just, you know, hundred percent racing all the time now, but yeah, it's, we get in our own place and we get in our own mind and we get right with what we have going on for ourselves. Yep. Look, I, I mean, coming from being with these different teams, I want to win every single time. Why this year affected me more than any other year where I haven't finished. I, I was three weeks later and just talking to my wife and she's like, something on your mind. I'm like, I'm not dealing with this loss very well. <laughs> I'm a very, very competitive person. I want to win as badly as everybody else. But it's different when I race with Jason and we both have normal jobs we're going to. And I mean this honestly, Shannon's never put this pressure on me. But that's how they make their living. Okay, that is this. They are a racing family. So in terms of my job to perform, I feel so much more pressure when I'm there to do that. And like I said, that family's never put that on me. I, I put that on myself, you know. But Monster doesn't sponsor the 20th place team, right? No. They sponsor the best. So that is a interesting little segue here. What advice would you give for a future whoever wanting to get into rock sports, what advice would you give there? T take it easy, take it slow, get your feet wet, m you know, m find your capabilities, find where you can get faster, get better, make time. Or is it, Hey, go flange up with, uh, with a, with the Campbell team, go flange up with one of these guys it's so that you get the exposure. Cause it, it, all too often what it seems like we see is guys that, you know, they, they follow the, the Instagram world and they want that, you know, some instant gratification. And if they're telling their friends, Hey, I'm, you know, follow me, I'm going out to race King of hammers. And if they DNF, it's like life ending life wrecking for them. And mm -hmm. you're sitting here saying, I mean, I worried about it for th three weeks after the race that we DNF, but it wasn't the end of the world. I got up on Monday and still went to work. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, and I have a tremendous, I'm just using Lauren as an example. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Lauren because he decided I am going to do this for a living. I'm going to do, I'm going to get rid of everything else and I'm going to be that guy. I, you know, I don't know that many people have the balls to do that. Right. Like that is a, oh, he's crazy. Yeah. I mean, he's awesome. It's awesomely crazy. Yeah, no, it is. Like I said, I have a tremendous amount of respect. My balls are not that big. And of course I, was never that good to where I had that opportunity where I thought I could actually do something like that. But for most people who are getting into it, my suggestion is make sure that whether you win or lose is not life changing because 
that the getting across the finish line and winning is is really super hard to do as has been proven right and when i hear people mortgaging their their homes and like getting into this extreme debt to come do this i'm like oh man that's life changing and le- unless you can win because you're not going to get a sponsor until you get up on that on that podium and uh so that's that's kind of my suggestion look if it's if it's somebody who's just got some extra money to spend and go out and have some fun then you take that first year and you figure out a way to finish right because that's a big deal once you win finishing doesn't matter anymore as you know that all that matters is winning as i told you in the little bio i don't care whether it's second or 15th it's not winning right like that's that's the mindset once you win that race like it's only first that matters anymore and you aren't the first one to say that jason isn't the first one to say that i've even heard you know from miller i've heard it from lauren yeah it's you got to feed, you got to feed it. You got to feed the beast, right? The beast says, yep. you know, I, once you've tasted it once, you want a second helping and it's not, it's not an easy second helping to get or a third helping or in now your case, a fourth, you're hunting a fourth now, but well, you know, every year it's something different. It's when you first, you just want to win. And then it was like, God, if you could win twice. And then Shannon won three times. I'm like, oh my God, what if you could, win? what if you could tie Shannon? And then we tied Shannon. I was like, well, nobody else has gone back to back. That's good to know. It won't happen for at least two more years. And then if we won again this year, like it's always, you're just stepping it up a little bit more to what you need to try and motivate you to, to succeed. The mental game and what we tell ourselves, yep. what we justify in our own heads. Well, oh, it's a great story. Every time I can justify anything. Why? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Jason Berger folks. Wow, man. Couple hours with you. Feel like I know you like I've known you my whole life. What a great conversation. Did we cover every base you wanted to cover? Yeah, I don't remember. I didn't look back at our outline, yeah. but <laughs> we, we talked about your junk right out of the gate. That was a great yeah, hook. That was, that was a I great did, hook. You, I know you said you were going to kind of throw me off there and I like really kind of threw me <laughs> off. But like I told you, I'm a very honest, transparent person. Like I'm really open about anything, you know, and, and honestly, like you were like, I know you had mentioned like, Hey, I want to kind of dive into what you're doing. Um, you don't need to let me trade secrets. There's really no, the teams I've been affiliated with. They're not secretive. Uh, Jason is not secretive. I mean, he's not going to have somebody come up and measure exactly what he's doing with all of his steering geometry and suspension and stuff like that. But he's pretty open. Shannon's always been the most open person about everything, right? Everything. Yeah. And it's because I think that for the majority of those people, we, any, any of those people, I think anybody racing wants to win when you're at your absolute best. I said it to Waylon when his dad passed him, when he didn't need to, I said, here's the deal, Waylon, when you win, you will absolutely have earned that win. Your dad is making sure of it, you know? And that's, and I think that's always been Shannon's deal. And it was Jason's deal. Jason's like, I want, I want, I want somebody's rig to be the fastest and the best it's ever been. I want it to not break down. And that's the guy I want to beat. I don't want to beat everybody that breaks down. I want to beat the, the guy who's almost just as fast. And we just outsmarted him a little bit. And we've talked, man, we've talked about this on this show on, with other people. And I, th- I think I can, you know, we can test the DNA back to trace the DNA back to many people. But one of the main proponents of that is Shannon Campbell. Shannon yep. would, will give you the shirt off his back because he wants to beat you on course. Yep. That's it. Like doesn't it will drink beer afterwards when our junk's all broke down. But that mindset, and we've seen J- Jason Shear at the same time, we, all these guys have kind of embraced that. And it's this whole, it's what makes our Ultra Fork community, the off-road community, the rock sports community, just the best damn people that you want to be associated with. You know, birds of a feather flock together, whatever. But best damn people. I love being a part of the community. I'm glad you're a part of the community. I'm, because of this, 
I've got the opportunity to sit down with you and meet you. And now you get the opportunity to, to share your story with, uh, with the world here when everybody only knew you based on, uh, people calling you the best co-driver, the winningest co-driver in all of history. Now we know. <laughs> Look, we're, uh, and I don't know where to close this up, but, um, most people probably don't want to be around any of us on race day. My wife says I'm an absolute pain in the ass on race day. Do you want to talk to Dave Cole during race week? Good luck with that. Dave and I are close. I've had him ripping my head off. And then after we get done with the race, we're best buddies again. Like, you know, so we're, that is what we bred in ultra four for sure. We will do anything for each other. Come race day. When that flag drops, I'm there to kick your ass. But before and after that, I will do anything and give anything to you to make sure that you're successful also. And on that note, we're out. That's awesome, Wyatt. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks, Jason. Uh, thank you, yeah, Jason Berger, folks. Really long time. I wasn't expecting us to talk that long. But that, yeah. was, that was good. No, so for, I hope it's not boring. <laughs> I love this outtakes. Uh, and on that note, folks, Jason Berger, winningest co-driver in Ultra 4 history. He's a, he's a badass. Find him uh, either doing CrossFit, telling you about CrossFit, or uh, on the lake bed with Jason Shear. Jason Berger, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much, Wyatt. All right, we're really out this time. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make, as usual. I really have to thank my uh, my three partners on this. Custom Splice, those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at uh, customsplice.com. Give them a call. Machining, oh my gosh, Brandon Machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If if you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They are a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I, uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company, they're in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this uh this venture and this project and everything give them give them a call for your suspension needs these guys do magic with springs and then the parent company mass motorsports engines man they have uh they have engines unlocked hand built lots of horsepower they're your guys thanks guys we'll catch you next week thank you for listening and taking a dive into the talent tank please like and subscribe on instagram at the talent tank or our website thetalenttank.com